Gitanjali, it's a pleasure to sit down with you today. I am really passionate about educating listeners and making sure that they understand their role, not only here in the Fraser Valley, but more broad and understanding your role as a citizen across Canada, understanding what's going on in the world. And I think that that's something uh, UFE seems to show an interest in by making this course more mandatory, Mm -hmm. because I think that we can get lost in what's going on locally, what's going on in our community, what's going on in our province, what's going on in Canada. And then we kind of forget about the world around us. And Mm -hmm. I think the beauty of Canada was that We're bringing in cultures and communities from all diverse backgrounds, but for some reason it feels like along the way we lost that or we're we're not keeping up with that the way we should. I feel like there's a lot of global events taking place Uh that I'm not well versed in, that I feel like having someone like yourself on who's kind of dedicated your life to understanding global issues and uh, situating people in what's kind of taking place and explaining that responsibility to people I think is so, it's valuable. It's it gives us that responsibility that I think encourages us mm-hmm. to to take up our responsibilities, to understand why we have these rights. So to start off, would you mind giving listeners a brief introduction of yourself? Sure. Well, um, as I mentioned, my name is Gitanjali, and um, I'm a mother. I'm an assistant professor in global development studies at the University of the Fraser Valley, and I'm also a uh, gender and development practitioner. Uh, so I think we, we will probably talk about, dig into that a little bit, what that means. Um, yeah. And I also uh, am involved in quite a few different community groups. I'm on the advisory council for the United Nations Association of Canada for their lower mainland um, BC branch, um, as well as several other global uh, networks that focus on um, gender issues, but also development issues. Right. That is so interesting. So can you can we start off with just understanding what do you think the role of a citizen is? What do you think um, we can do or what our responsibilities are in our everyday lives? Because mm-hmm. I think we think of like, oh, I vote every four years or I participate by voting in this. But our responsibilities, I think, are greater than mm-hmm. that. And that's not something to... Uh, like shrug your shoulders at. It's actually an opportunity to have your voice heard and to make a positive difference. So can you tell us your thoughts on what a citizen is? Definitely. I think that's a great question. And I think there's so many different levels to this. And this is what I love about teaching global development studies and interacting with students at the university and talking exactly about this. Because You know, like you mentioned, we are citizens locally for our local neighborhood, our local community, uh, our our province of BC. We're citizens of Canada as a country. But then also, uh, you know, we have to remember that we're global citizens. And what does that mean? So that's something that I always uh, speak to my students about. And I love actually having assignments where students break that down and let me know what does a global citizen mean to them? Um, and how do they interpret that? Um, because it's really quite fascinating. Uh, you know, quite often students will talk about how they feel a belonging to their local community. Um, and a lot of them will tell me, well, I'm taking development studies courses, or I'm interested in global development studies, because I want to better understand what's happening elsewhere in the world. And so I always feel it's so important to to remind students that you are a citizen Locally, you're a citizen nationally, but you're also a citizen of the world. Um, And making those connections and trying to make connections between what's happening locally around you and what might be happening globally and trying to build bridges and trying to see the connections between maybe what 
actions uh, we do here locally, how that has a greater impact, not only in our country, but also an impact globally and seeing those connections. And, and then also realizing that a lot of the issues that concern us here locally are issues that concern people and communities elsewhere as well. So isn't this a great opportunity to understand that issues sometimes that we're fighting for, social justice issues, for instance, are not issues that just concern us. Um, they concern large swaths of the population around the world. And what isn't it, you know, a great uh, opportunity, but also a great way to sort of, you know, have an impact on these issues by building bridges, being allies, linking up um, movements across the world that are fighting for very similar things, fighting for equality, fighting for inclusion. Um, so that's what I always try to get across in uh, the classes that I teach um, in global development studies. And I love to see how students start to make those linkages. So quite often, I will ask them to reflect upon an issue that's important to them here locally, but then also trying to make connections between that issue and issues happening elsewhere in the world. Well, what are the root causes? And quite often, you'll find that the root causes for social injustices are the same, no matter where you are talking. Um, yeah, and just trying to show them how you know, in many instances, when people have linked up, you know, here sitting in Canada, we can be allies for for people uh, facing very similar issues in other parts of the world. And isn't that wonderful? Isn't that great? And I think that global perspective and being able to make linkages between the local and global is what makes us global citizens. And I think that will strengthen globally our abilities to come up with solutions for, you know, the pressing challenges that we have in the world today. Um, yeah, and, and can offer really effective uh, solutions as well. And I think it also sparks a lot of ideas as well. So for instance, we're always talking about the fact that, you know, the, the traditional way of practicing development was always that we would be here in the global north, coming up with wonderful solutions and ideas, and then we'd be trying to impose them elsewhere. Um, but it's not just that, you know, it's a, it's a two-way process. Also, there are wonderful things happening in communities in countries in the global south, which can teach us things as well. Um, so that sort of, you know, understanding that it's it's trying to have a global perspective and understanding, but not trying to impose your ways or your knowledge systems on others, trying to find out what the knowledge systems or practices are locally and see how that uh, meshes or how that's different from your own can be a great place to to spark ideas and solutions. I think that that is one really good example because I think that we start to, um, I don't know, have egos when we've attended an educational institute that we feel like, well, now I know. Now mm -hmm. I have the answers. I've looked at yeah. the literature and now I can tell you how to fix exactly. your communities. And when I think of like, um, it's a good thing that Indigenous communities now have more democratic processes mm -hmm. of elections. Um, we lost kind of our old ways and that's when yeah. you hear about ideas of like hereditary chiefs. Yeah. But there's a lot of knowledge that was there that was overlooked or underestimated uh -huh. a lot. Um, I'm currently working on a paper for First Nations Economic Development and realizing that we had trade routes and yeah. um, the Ulican trails existing far before the fur trade. Mm -hmm. And there's just assumptions made that Indigenous people couldn't have had their own right. processes for trade. They couldn't have had um, plans for how to grow their community, that mm -hmm. that didn't exist because, um, like John A. McDonald described us as savages. So yeah. if you're a savage, then you don't know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And so these assumptions, they kind of limit your understanding. And one of my big interests now is trying to see how do Indigenous beliefs and 
um, like Christ Christian beliefs or like the underlying mechanisms that run our society today, mm. how do they overlap? Because mm. I think there's been too much striving to figure out how they're different yep. and placing one over here and one over there. And, yep. and I think that when you see that we have a flood story and mm. Christianity has a flood story, mm -hmm. when you think we have salmon ceremonies and yep. um, Christian re religions have grace or some form of giving thanks mm -hmm. that you see more of an overlap yes. and you have a greater appreciation when you see oh we're not that different yes. that we're not completely separated mm -hmm. and i think that that's something you likely face when you're trying to have these conversations yeah. is don't underestimate these mm -hmm. other communities or these other countries just because they're not where you are today exactly but i love that example you gave because it's also trying to get people to understand and appreciate that there are things we have in common with different people around the world as well so our common bonds you know things that, that bind us, but also to respect difference at the same time. Exactly. Yeah. So what has the reception been like? Because I think of um, in your classes, I think of like myself and where I would have been trying to take these courses. And I see myself being the person who's like, ah, oh, like voting, like all my friends kind of go, what's the point? Like my vote isn't going to swing an election. My vote isn't going to change the outcome. Mm -hmm. And what I've gotten more interested in is realizing that you vote in so many different ways every mm -hmm. single day. Mm -hmm. You vote when you shop on Amazon, whether yep. or not you choose to buy from there or a small business. Yep. You might think, oh, I only spent $10, so what is that? But if you think about how many times you do that a week, mm -hmm. per month, per year, mm -hmm. that these companies, these organizations are very interested in, in what your habits are and yep. what direction. And so you do influence mm -hmm. algorithms. You influence um, how businesses pivot themselves yep. um, every day with every purchase you make. And mm -hmm. so you have a lot more influence than I think people realize. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why, but it feels like we're, we're often discouraged from thinking that we have a voice. Yep. And when people try and tell us, oh, you should go vote, it's very tisk tisk. If you don't vote, you're mm -hmm. a bad person. It's mm -hmm. not like, well, you have yeah. something important to say. Yeah. And that's what I've tried to get across with different guests mm -hmm. is like, figure out what your passion is and then figure out a way to share that yeah. because we're all better off if you do. Not just mm. your, It's not just you. If you start your business and you have a restaurant, yeah. well, we get to try your food now. We get yeah. to learn about your culture. If yeah. you do certain things, if you choose to figure out what you're good at mm -hmm. and then share that, mm -hmm. we all know more, we do better, yep. and we become more strong as a community yep. as a consequence. So what has the reception been like in your classes? Do you feel like you have to kind of pull them back in and, and convince them that this matters? Because that's what I experience, I guess, with some of my peers. Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, I think part of it is that um, maybe some students don't realize actually what role they can play. And so you're talking about making changes, influencing change through consumer behavior. But also, I don't think we can underestimate the impact of us being, uh, you know, sort of opening our minds to being more, uh, you know, to having a global perspective. But I think what that does, it, it sort of allows us to be more inclusive, to be more receptive of difference, um, you know, to to understand also perhaps that there are certain groups in our society here in Canada, but also in other societies and other parts of the world where, you know, they are being excluded, they are being marginalized and trying to, you know, even though we might have a voice, so trying to encourage students to realize you've got a voice, you're able to, to voice your opinion, but there might be groups in your society or groups other in other parts of the world that don't have an ability to voice their opinion. Um, so, so we should, we should really, uh, you know, seize that opportunity, I think, to, to, I suppose, 
uh, you know, use those freedoms that we have here. Um, We have incredible access here to certain resources, uh, certain services, but I also want students to realize that that doesn't mean that every group living here in Canada has equal access or equal ability to, to make use of certain resources and services in their society. So I think what it is, is making students realize that, um, even a change in perspective, having a more inclusive, uh, nuanced understanding of issues in their local communities, but also then linking that to global issues will, I think, uh, possibly spur on um, a lot of solutions. A lot of solutions that we seek in the global development sector is actually just about having a shift in perspective. Um, so that's what I always try to encourage in my classes, um, for sure. It's not just necessarily what students can tangibly do, or it may not be that you're going to see an impact uh, necessarily uh, for uh, having a different perspective. But that in the long run, you know, I always talk about root causes of injustice or marginalization. What is it? And quite often it revolves around certain societal beliefs or certain norms in your society that can lead to certain groups being, you know, facing discrimination. So I don't think we can underestimate at all what uh, pushing our perspectives to be more inclusive and more global can do for the world. Right. Do you think that that's something that's easy for people to get on board with? Or do you think that that's something that people are hesitant? Like, it just seems like, at least when, again, when I was in university, I was very, I think, small minded and very yeah. like, what what am I going to do? Like, mm-hmm. what's what are my thoughts going to impact? Yeah. And so do you ever run into that with your students where they don't feel like, that inspirational, you're saying yeah. it as an inspirational message of like, you can do, you can yes. be so much more if you mm-hmm. understand your role. Yep. And do you ever get pushback or perhaps like... Not pushback, but maybe like what you said, surprise. Oh, that's all that's required? <laughs> you know, I think sometimes students think that, you know, to solve problems or to be a better global citizen, they have to tangibly actually be implementing things or doing things. No, it's actually simple things of just being a more... uh inclusive, respectful person in the world can achieve great things. So I think when students see that quite often I boil down these huge global issues and I boil it down to really simple things of just changing the way you think and trying to influence others also to be, um, you know, more uh, inclusive and more uh, less biased or less prejudiced, you know, to think about maybe what our own internal biases might be and to challenge that. It's that's sort of the 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 root cause of many of the injustices we see in the world. So if I can even get students to think about that, and I think that's what surprises a lot of students, um, is that when we boil down global issues, we always seem to come back down to uh, ways of thinking that are discriminatory or biased. Can we challenge that? You have to start with yourself first. Um, and then hopefully be an ally with others who are still marginalized or voiceless in the world um, and fight for them and advocate for them. Yeah, I think of like how people approach things and like that's the whole idea of university, right, is to you're going to have 
good and bad from your parents. You're going to have them tell you certain good things about the world. And um, perhaps they teach you entrepreneurship is a great thing and you should go become an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. But then they leave you with certain baggage that Mm -hmm. they haven't processed issues from their parents or their grandparents. And they've just passed on these negative messages Mm -hmm. of how the world is, of what to expect. Um, Like you're never going to be able to beat people. There's going to be people out there who are going to take advantage of you. We kind of like pass on Mm -hmm. stereotypes, negative, negative mentalities about other people. Yep. And then you start carrying that and you don't realize that you're carrying it. You don't mm-hmm. go, what what are the good and what are the bad? And how do I sift it out and figure out what's good and bad? Yep. You kind of just move forward. And the idea of university is to take you and go, mm-hmm. okay, this is how things are. This is like, look at the statistics on if you treat people in this way, yep. um, you're disadvantaging them. Mm-hmm. And they can offer just as much. Like um, one of your interests is uh, women in the mm-hmm. workplace. And there was huge negative perceptions of the idea of women coming yep. into the workplace and just assumptions made about the the role of yep. women and then that change do you want to elaborate on that perhaps you can say yeah. it better than I can well I'm very passionate about this issue I mean I think gender inequalities and gender biases are one inc- uh, what's the word um pervasive form of discrimination around the world um I probably got interested in looking at gender issues and kind of made it my area of specialty, probably because of what I saw personally. So, I mean, I grew up here in Canada. I was born here. My parents immigrated from India. Um, And I, you know, I think it was interesting for me because we used to travel back to India regularly to go visit family and relatives. And I could see that I was growing up in a country here in Canada where it was it was the norm. Uh, it was the expectation that girls and boys should both equally be able to achieve things that they want in life. But I saw that back in India, it wasn't necessarily the case at all. Um, so I and but then even so, having said that, my parents came from India, so they were also bringing with them their own, uh, you know, norms and beliefs and attitudes from India. But yet I was being born, I was born here, I was being raised here. So I had a lot of friction with my family as well, trying to push back on their expectations for me. And I don't think it's necessarily that um, my parents maybe valued my brother more than me, but I, I could still see that they had these, uh, you know, beliefs that they brought with them, which didn't gel with me. <laughs> Why are there different expectations for girls and boys? I couldn't comprehend that. I couldn't understand that. And I and I had to to fight every day because of that. Um, so I personally became interested in gender issues, I think, because I was immersed in that fight myself personally. And I could see, you know, that in much of the world, at least here in Canada, things aren't perfect by any means. Gender biases, gender stereotypes still uh, operate here for sure. Um, but I increasingly saw that in many parts of the world, it was, it seemed hopeless. It seemed hopeless for women and girls. And I was just distressed by that. <laughs> How could that be? Cause I think myself personally, I could feel bits of it. And then I just started to imagine if I was living there, I couldn't even speak back to my parents. I couldn't even, you know, it, it's, it's, I would have been like the outlier in my society in India if I was trying to push back on some of these really patriarchal norms. Um, And I probably would have been thrown out of my family and excluded. In fact, that is what happens in much of the world. You know, those patriarchal norms are so dominant. So I think, you know, the gender equality issue is one that sort of sparked that interest initially for me to fight against inequality and injustice. But now and increasingly, as I've been working in the field, I've been finding it's not just, 
looking at it through the lens of gender. Um, I always talk and I teach my students about having an intersectional lens. Gender is one aspect. So, I mean, there are many different social categories uh, in different societies in which we are categorizing people or even identifying ourselves. So, I mean, gender could be one, sexuality could be one, your race, your ethnicity, your religion, all of these things um, play a role in terms of your experience in that society. Um, you know, and I think certain groups of people who probably have uh, certain multiple overlapping social identities uh, can face greater challenges and greater inequalities in their communities and in their society. So realizing that you need a very um, intersectional look at trying to find out why certain groups are being left behind or being excluded by others or why those groups are facing discrimination. It's not an it's not an easy task. Quite often you'll find it's it's for various different reasons. They could have several different social identities that are leading to inequalities for them. Right. Can you tell us a little bit more about what what that looked like for you? Were you like underestimated? Were you being like told like you don't need to worry about these things? What did that look like in terms of your life? Because mm. I think it's so beautiful to see people face adversity and then try and make that their life, like mm -hmm. find find passion, find meaning yep. in addressing that issue. And so yep. I'm interested in more about your circumstances. Yeah, I always joke about that. I always say to my parents, I, I thank them now for <laughs> for making me fight for these things because um, that's really what led me down this path. I think if we personally either see or experience, and that's why also I tell my students, even if they themselves personally feel disconnected from issues happening in the world, or they can't understand the viewpoint of someone who's been excluded because they themselves have sort of grown up with privileges. You have to get out and move around and meet people, all different kinds of people, all different kinds of groups here in your own local community, but also globally. And if you do so, you will actually be able to speak with and understand people from very different backgrounds, very different vantage points who have faced challenges. So getting back to your question, though, about myself, um, yeah, I, I, I think that, you know, definitely uh, not only the gender issue. So I know I, I fought very hard <laughs> with my parents from a young age um, about you know, simple things like it wasn't even like, you know, I think I don't think my parents had different expectations for us, but I could see that quite often they would revert back to, uh, you know, viewpoints that boys have certain roles. Like so, for instance, one, one example, um, you know, if we had guests coming to the house, I was expected to help my mother in the kitchen to prepare tea and serve it to the guests while my brother could go fool around outside and go play outside. And right. right, like simple things like that would get under my skin. Yeah. And, and it's not that I don't think my parents, uh, you know, it's not that they felt, you know, that I was to be a housewife because they certainly pushed all of us, myself and my brother to, to, you know, be educated and do well in life. So, but it's just those little things can still wound you. Of course, because you, know? you think of like in that moment, you're yeah. not thinking about it, like how how that's going to impact you long term. And you kind of go like, well, why can't I? Like, what's the difference between him exactly. and I? Exactly. It's just the fact that a difference was being made. Yeah. Why? 
Yeah. And I think that that shapes people. Like, you don't get to choose what shapes you as a person. You don't mm-hmm. get to choose those little moments yep. that, that seem to stay in your mind. And yep. uh, like what somebody says to you in passing. Yep. And then you go kind of like, well, that I didn't yep. like that. And it eats away at yes. you. But the person who said it, yep. if you ask them a week later, yep. they're like, I don't remember exactly. that I said that. Exactly. So I had so many discussions with my mother. She went, I never meant that. Did I really do that? Did I really say that? I think really, quite honestly, a lot of times people aren't aware that they are differentiated. And what impact that could have on you. But I don't regret any of it. I actually am so grateful that I personally could see that and experience that because that's given me a really great understanding for what, uh, you know, differentiation can do and having that lens and applying that lens to whatever group of people I might be working with in the community in whichever country I'm in, having that really that solid understanding uh, that we need to understand, uh, you know, biases and norms and how that's affecting different groups of people. Yeah, I'm interested in your thoughts on where do we find that balance? Because I think of like my circumstance, if you look at my, I, I don't know, my factors, you can think like, well, I have a mother who struggled with FASD. Yep. My grandmother went to Indian residential school. Yep. And uh, you look at the overrepresentation of Indigenous people in the criminal justice system mm-hmm. and you start to go, oh, like, what track are you on? Like, yep. you start to look at this. And for me, going through uh, high school and then university, I really fought against mm-hmm. people talking about it in this way because yep. I was like, I'm not that. And yep. like, it was frustrating because it feels like at least with indigenous communities, we talk about them like they're mm. they're crippled. Yeah. And I've never enjoyed that. I yeah. think we talk about Indian residential schools, we talk about the 60s school, but we don't talk about the beauty of the culture, the mm-hmm. the flavors of the cuisine, the, yeah. the beauty of the language. And so we get this, I don't know, unbalanced approach where growing up I was very adamant that I am not a victim. Mm-hmm. I am not in this negative circumstance yeah. where you can look at me like I'm yeah. wounded and that I need yeah. a savior to come and fix all my problems yeah. for me. Yeah. And when I talk about indigenous communities, mm-hmm. I want people to think of it in the lens of like, watch us bounce back, like yes. watch us turn this around, watch us get back on our feet yeah. and start thr- like, um, cannabis isn't my favorite example, but it's an example of indigenous communities outpacing mm-hmm. the province in terms of our ability to, um, find good regulations within our communities because we don't have to follow the province's guidelines and communities have like really taken to that and tried to develop faster than the province has been able to and I Mm -hmm. think that that's an example of indigenous communities trying to outpace the province and Mm -hmm. I I don't know if we want zero struggle for people because it sounds like that's how people get shaped and it's what makes them find their passion and I think of some of my I'm a like my music genre is definitely rap Mm -hmm. and like the main thesis of almost all the songs I listened to is like I was at rock bottom and then I overcame it. And mm. so there's like there's a certain amount of struggle you want people to yeah. have, but you don't want them to be removed from the game entirely. Yes. And so how do you go about finding that balance? Yeah, that's a great question. I you're right. You don't want to eliminate that struggle. Like I said to you, I am really happy about all my struggles. Um but at the same time, too, is it really fair that certain groups are having to struggle? You know, so it's 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 uh, it's a difficult one. I think you know, in development studies, I mean, so many things that you've just addressed hit a lot of the issues that I try to get across in uh, you know the discipline of development studies of also not wanting to see groups that are marginalized as victims. They are fighting back. They fight back every day. Um, And that's something so important, um, you know, probably uh, really important for me in any kind of global development course that I teach is to 
not assume that a certain group doesn't have agency, but also to question, are you uh, as a wealthy person from the global north in any way making things harder for this country or this group of people or the way that you're practicing development studies? Are you making things harder or are you being a true ally? Um, you know, trying to amplify the struggles and voices from these groups um, or are you just trying to come in and impose and say, I'm the savior and do what I tell you to do and everything will be better? So, yeah, it's a, there's a lot of intricate issues there. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think of like um, Britain imposing their approach to so many countries, including India, mm -hmm. and then leaving and yeah. then having like half a system in place yeah. that they didn't fully adopt. Yeah. And same with indigenous people and our rules. We yeah. didn't 100% adopt them because we didn't understand why they were being brought mm -hmm. in. And I try and explain that in regards to like our voting system, like um, Shiam First Nation here in Chilliwack, they just did a recent election and they had, I thought they did such a good job because they took the best of both worlds. Mm -hmm. They had the election policies that kind of governments have perpetuated onto indigenous communities, but they had elders ask the, the, um, the members running mm -hmm. questions mm -hmm. and then they had to give full written out long yeah. form answers and it was done by the elders and that mm -hmm. would have been how it was done prior to colonization yeah. and so there was like a perfect I felt like meshing of the two systems mm -hmm. so that they worked for both people but it had to take the indigenous people like pulling it back in and mm -hmm. readopting it in order to start to get those benefits out yeah. of it yeah. and so we have these so many countries like uh, you think of Afghanistan and we again imposed ourselves mm -hmm. and then kind of realized well we're not fixing it the way we thought we were going to fix it in yeah. this short time span yeah. and it didn't work and so what are your viewpoints on how we go about doing these things and yeah well i that's what i talk about today in in all my classes is you know thankfully the development sector in terms of the way uh well the way we study global development issues but the way we practice uh in this sector of you know uh, development assistance or foreign assistance or humanitarianism is really now all the talk is about decolonizing the sector. Uh, we talk about decolonizing in Canada as well, but in global development, it's a huge, uh, uh, you know, probably the biggest, not even debate anymore. It's all understood that we need to decolonize the sector. We need to decolonize the way we're working. We need to stop, you know, imposing these Western notions of even what development means upon others. Um, we are supposed to be allies advocating for and trying to limit our impacts as the global north on the global south, but we have to allow there to be space and uh, to a certain degree financing for local solutions to local problems in these countries, but yet still recognizing this those historical legacies of, co of colonization um, and trying to do something about that. Right. So what are your, like, can we talk about some global issues? I know the, the Amazon has been a big one in terms of what do we do? Because you don't want to impose yourself. But at the same time, if we have much more damage to that area, mm -hmm. there's not much of a conversation left to be had about if we are actually as a society trying to address climate change. Mm -hmm. And uh, I interviewed Sammy Ken, who's a chemical engineer, and he described uh, the Amazon as like one of the lungs of the planet. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's apt. But what do we do then? Like, how do we approach a problem like that when we don't want to impose ourselves? And I know there's been environmental organizations trying to donate, say, take the money instead of destroying the, the forest. Mm -hmm. But the deforestation has, um, I just interviewed Lee Harding, and he said the deforestation has even increased over the past year mm -hmm. in comparison to any other year mm -hmm. so far. So like, 
what are your thoughts on how we go about addressing complex problems like that? Yeah. I mean, again, I would probably come back to this whole idea now, you know, when we are talking and looking at climate change, um, this whole idea of climate justice, uh, you know, activists from the global south arguing that the countries that are feeling the brunt of climate change are the countries that are probably contributing the least to it. So again, I agree with you, you know, deforestation in the Amazon is a huge issue. There are political issues there. There are economic issues, uh, you know, for the countries in the global south that are allowing this to occur. So definitely, I agree that putting pressure on the governments uh, in these regions is still important. But having said that, are we doing enough to to look at ourselves? Like, are we doing enough to look at what the global north is contributing to climate change? Are we making any changes or sacrifices in our way of living here in the global north? Because we know even today that it's still the global north that is contributing the most to climate change. But unfortunately, it's populations living in the global south who are getting the worst repercussions of it currently. Although, we have felt it ourselves here in BC now. We had floods. We've had wildfires. It's touching home, very close to home for us in the global north as well. So a lot of people are asking, well, is that what is going to make us now sit up and actually do something about our own actions here in the global north? And that's been something that activists in the global south have been calling for for a long time. So I, you know, I'm torn with this issue. I always tell my students for a lot of these global issues, we here in the global north are actually contributing more than we think. Yeah. So examine our own role. But also that doesn't mean that we can't fight and advocate on, you know, together as allies with, um, you know, environmental groups in Brazil that are also fighting for their environment. Why not make those linkages with us here in the north and them there in, you know, in Brazil and, and fight together? But I don't want that to overshadow us from being introspective and realizing that we here also need to make changes to our lifestyles, to our own policies that we have here in Canada to, yeah. to battle some of those global issues. I couldn't agree more. I get stuck because it's like, it's so, like, I got frustrated, I guess, with the floods here because I saw politicians leaping at the opportunity to blame climate change mm -hmm. when we know that the dike was one out of four right. um, in terms of its rating. And then they're using it as like a talking point that it's <laughs> it's really not our fault. Right. If we just had like stopped climate change, then we wouldn't have these <laughs> problems. And it's like, well, you like our governments made, they got rid of the Sumas River mm. and then they didn't maintain the dikes yeah. that were supposed to prevent the Sumas uh, Lake from, sorry, Sumas Lake from coming back. Mm -hmm. And so that was like, to me, a government failure. Yep. And then they leaped on the opportunity to blame climate change, to abdicate their own responsibility mm -hmm. to the maintenance of the dikes. And like, it's obviously a, a complex issue, yep. but I see the the frustrations of both sides of the climate conversation of because mm -hmm. I saw a post on Facebook of people being like this is an evidence of climate change and it's like well you're I guess you're right in that like if we had maintained the dikes we don't know what would have happened right. if they were properly geared yep. but that doesn't make climate change as a whole not obviously mm. an issue and so you get this it's like a complex yep. conversation and people are trying to simplify it down to a one or a zero yeah and always pushing the blame yeah. elsewhere and not wanting to put the money where it's needed to address these things. Uh, yeah, that that's not only applicable to what you just mentioned about the dikes, but also um, very applicable to a lot of these global development issues today. Yeah, and so I'm interested uh, to continue this conversation on the role of citizens. Do you feel like there's a, a good route to go about 
um, approaching complex problems? Um, do you feel like we we are doing better, or do you feel like we're less active as citizens today mm. than we were? Uh, like you think of like the Vietnam War and people standing up and mm. voicing their their dis distaste, their their frustration with that war. Mm. And you think of like the movements that had taken place in regards to that in comparison to now. I do feel like there's people vocalizing and using their rights, but mm. it doesn't feel like we're as informed, as 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 thoughtful in our conversations. I don't see as many high quality debates mm. where you get the the best on one side and the best on the other side mm -hmm. to really hash out issues. Do you feel like we're moving in a better direction in regards to our discussions? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I suppose it depends where we are. Like I've seen some wonderful, um, some wonderful evidence of you know grassroots movements, very well informed movements in you know different countries in sub-Saharan Africa, for instance, that are lobbying their governments on certain issues really effectively. Um, but yet, I can see what you're saying. Also, I I can also see where you know we might see protests, but badly informed <laughs> uh, people uh, who are not really even aware of what they're actually protesting. So I don't know. I think that's a hard one. I think it really depends. I, I see examples that really inspire me. And then I see examples where, you know, it's exactly what you said, where I, I feel like we're protesting, but do we even know what we're protesting? And then sometimes you're protesting, but it doesn't, it's not followed up or done in such a way that you're actually influencing or affecting change at a government or policy level. So, you know, that's a, that's a, that's something that probably people study a lot in development studies is what is that advocacy role like? How do we um, bring about change where it's needed, you know, with government actors or policymakers, you know, because a lot of issues that we work on in development studies actually just a class I had last week, we were looking at um, education challenges in countries in the global south and how badly they've been affected with COVID and schools shutting down for years. Um, is that, you know, while it's important to work at a grassroots level and to mobilize and to have a voice, you equally have to work at that higher level of trying to affect change with those so-called decision makers. Um, you need to work at all those different levels, you know, from bottom to up. And that's what's so challenging about it. Yeah, because I think of like, uh, my, Rebecca and I watched the Martin Luther King uh, Jr. Document, documentary, and the way that he controlled his protest mm -hmm. and talked to, like, he was like, if you're going to fight a police officer, if you're looking for violence, yeah. you're not attending. Mm -hmm. We're not doing that. If they, if the police start to come at us, we kneel. And mm -hmm. like his organizational skills in regards to that was so... It feels like that's what's missing in some of these protests is mm -hmm. having a good, conscious, thoughtful person able to yeah. kind of navigate and have those conversations. And um, I interviewed Scott Sheffield, who's a, a military uh, historian and was interested in Indigenous people's involvement in uh, World War II. Mm -hmm. And he talked about how we had like a national identity for a while as peacekeepers, mm -hmm. um, this responsibility of what is Canada's role globally? Mm -hmm. Then after the Afghanistan war, a lot of Canadians lost favor with the idea that we have a role to play mm -hmm. globally. Mm -hmm. And from my understanding, um, more recent governments have kind of lost interest in making big differences abroad or believing that Canada has a larger role to play. Mm -hmm. And so I'm interested in your thoughts on what Canada's role is. And do you feel like the citizens know what their role is? Mm. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's a really great question. Um, 
And I think we have to remember that Canada is also really big and really diverse, and we have a lot of different groups of people and perspectives as well. So that's a tough one. But yeah, generally, like, you know, with my work that I've done globally, Canada has a great uh, sort of public global opinion um, in terms of what our values or principles are supposed to be. And I think Canada does a pretty good job of encouraging discussion and debate around a lot of issues. And I always like to say possibly we're doing a better job with that than maybe the Americans do. Um, You know, although if you think about it, you know, a lot of our ideals are somewhat similar, you know, uh, ideals, uh, principles around freedom, um, democracy. um, But certainly Canada, you're right, is well known for its role that we've played uh, over the years in peacekeeping globally. So um, I just kind of feel, though, I always sort of caution my students and whenever I'm asked questions when I'm working globally about Canada to not generalize and to always let people know that we're also not perfect. I think it's really important for us and for other countries and the so-called global north that are supposed to be developed countries that advocate for freedom and liberty and all of these things um, and human rights not to get complacent and to really, again, have that intersectional lens at looking at our own country and what's happening internally in our own country. So, you know, also realizing the the impacts that we've had historically on Indigenous populations here in Canada and not getting complacent about it. I mean, the, the shocking uh, discovery of graves at residential schools um, it, Globally, people have paid attention <laughs> to that. That's that's made a huge hit on, I would say, Canada's global reputation um, of being an advocate for human rights. Um, and but more than that, I think even just looking within a country like Canada, where things are supposed to be uh, fairly close to perfect, um, and saying and being honest about it, we're not perfect. We can do so much better. There are groups in our own community in our own society that are still struggling. Uh, not for a fault of their own. What are we doing about it? Um, so so I always like to, when I do get asked that question, when I do work globally about Canada, like for instance, I work a lot on trying to challenge um, stereotypes and biases in classrooms in different countries in sub-Saharan Africa. Usually, you know, uh, the majority of teachers are male. And so we're trying to um, sensitize um, male teachers, for instance, in this case, on trying to break those stereotypes and, you know, also calling on the girls in the classroom to go up in front of the chalkboard and give an example or to be leaders of the classroom. Uh, I always get asked that question, oh, but things must be great in Canada. It must be perfect over there. (laughs) No, it's not, you know, and I think that's really important for us to always remember and always to be constantly uh, um, trying to do better. Yeah, I just think of like, at certain points, I feel like there are pivotal moments in a country where somebody delivers a speech mm-hmm. that brings people together, like the signing of the the 1982 Constitution. It felt like, um, I know there was like disagreements amongst uh, Quebec, among mm-hmm. certain issues, but it felt like a, a bringing together of, of society mm-hmm. and that we were all going to be on the same page about this. Mm-hmm. And I feel like right now, I don't feel like we have like a national identity, mm-hmm. like not that we're perfect, yeah. but where are we pointing? What are, mm-hmm. what are our goals yeah. as a society? It feels like a lot of it, and this concerns me, is perpetuated by corporations. Mm-hmm. Uh, like the climate change movement, um, I support, but I get worried when I start seeing labels on products that say this is a green product. Yeah. And then you start reading that these, these, you only 
only have to meet a minimum threshold in order to have that little green mm-hmm. stamp. And then you're like, well, is this really making a difference? Yeah. And it feels like we're being told to put that on ourselves personally, mm-hmm. but we don't have like objectives that we're, we're all kind of working together on. And like, I, I know that the conservatives and liberals, we can disagree on things, but fundamentally, I feel like we have core values mm-hmm. about everybody should, like, I don't think conservatives disagree that everybody should be able to have enough food to support their family. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think that they don't believe in that. I yeah. just think that they have different ideas on how to how, get there. Yeah. And so being able to say, let's get back on the same page, yeah. it just doesn't feel like we've had a national conversation mm-hmm. where we're on the same page. Like during the last federal election, it felt yeah. like there were a lot of just throwing banana peels mm-hmm. at each other rather than saying, okay, I want the best for this country. I want the best for you and your family. Mm-hmm. This is my proposal. It might not be the best proposal, yep. but my core values yep. are X. Yep. Let's all as a society work towards these goals. It yep. feels like when I see our current prime minister and how he says one thing and then does something else, mm-hmm. it, it's discouraging because mm-hmm. it goes, it makes us, it puts it back on the citizens to figure out what is our national identity yeah. instead of us all being able to say, we're not perfect. We're going to, do poorly on certain things, mm-hmm. but we're going to try. And it feels like that kind of message hasn't been shared in a while. And that's, yeah. I'm interested yeah. in your thoughts on that. No, I agree with you completely. Um, and I think probably where, and I'm just going to bring this back to talking about the global development sector for a little bit, Canada's actually been not only in peacekeeping, but we've been quite out in the forefront for advocating for global development issues and for trying to redress some global inequities in the world. We are actually, um, you know, our government body that deals with development issues is called Global Affairs Canada. Um, And, you know, some academics have actually studied the role of the Canadian government in pushing along a lot of sort of really positive movements in how to address global issues. We are actually, I don't know if many people know, I always love to tell my students this, that Canada is the country that's been pushing the most at trying to tackle gender inequalities, but not just gender inequalities, Um, you know, inequalities facing different social groups that might be discriminated against in the world. Uh, We actually um, didn't shy away from even saying that our development assistance policy is actually called feminist. Um, We have been sort of leading the charge in getting other donors to really fight and to target specifically their development funds for the people who are the most um, marginalized. So we've we've done quite a bit of positive work, I would say, um, advocating for um, you know the, exactly the issues that we need to be tackling when when we're talking about global development. So I certainly am very proud of that. Um, I see that as um, a Canadian legacy. Um, but you're right; we probably haven't had for a long time uh, that I can think of these sorts of larger discussions about. What are we? We might have political differences, you know, but what are those core values? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if we, maybe a political science would be able, scientists would be able to shed some light there, but I haven't heard that. I really haven't. I've been hearing a lot of division and discussion of differences, but not a lot of discussion coming back to what are our core values. And and I think you're right. I don't think anyone from different political parties would say that the end goal is different. Our end goal is we want everyone in our society to be well. Um, but it's the means and how you get there where we start to differ and bicker and fight. Yeah, and yeah. I think that that 
differing and bickering is not necessarily a bad thing. Mm -hmm. I just think that we need to, like, again, just bring the two most intelligent people on the topic who completely disagree and have them Mm. hash it out so we can really think about these issues. And and I don't see, when I see, like, political debate, it Mm -hmm. feels like this is so nonsensical. Like, we're not really talking about the issue. You're seeing who can grandstand the best. And that's very uninformative to a person who likes three-hour conversations Mm. with people. I love to watch election debates because I'm I'm craving that. I want to have really great discussions and debates about what we need to do in our country. I haven't seen it. (laughs) Yeah, it's very discouraging because Mm -hmm. you think of all the conversations, all the nuances that we can really disagree on. Mm -hmm. We don't need to disagree on the surface level wording of X. We Mm -hmm. can really have genuine conversations. And I'm hopeful that the podcasting world will appeal more to Uh, political leaders, because we can hash it out here. Mm -hmm. You can take as much time as you want to lay out your arguments and your perspectives. There's no rush. And then people can hear how you got to your thought and your perspective. And to have that in-depth discussion or debate or whatever you want to call it really openly will, again, do the same thing that I first started to talk about in the beginning of our conversation, which is building those bridges, seeing the similarities, seeing, seeing the common goals that we have and reinforcing that. You can only realize that you've got common goals if you actually sit down and talk. Yeah. Really talk, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So let's talk about your research in regards to women. Um, my understanding, and this is a surface level understanding, is that women actually being allowed into the workplace um, shows like an it's an economic marker for success, which means that country is going in the right direction and they're going to see prosperity, they're going to see growth, and they're obviously going to see um, a higher quality of living when mm-hmm. they're respecting all of their citizens equally. Yep. Can you tell us about your research in regards yeah. to this? I mean, so definitely, you know, at a macro level, if you look at statistics that have been gathered um, in countries in the global south where girls for the first time are being sent to school increasingly compared to before. And they are, um, you know, going to school, they are going out into the workforce, uh, you know, the impacts on their lives, you can definitely see the, you know, improvements in terms of They're marrying later. Um, You know, there's been a lot of research and studies that have shown that they've got greater agency and decision-making abilities once they do get married. Um, So certainly that that linkage, I can't deny, is there. You know, if you are allowing girls to access equally education and the workforce, it is having huge societal benefits. Um, But I always caution, uh, you know, my students and whenever I have done sort of in-depth research looking at sort of the impacts of education on girls or women um, is that it's it's obviously it's not always such a linear process. Um, And there's like, for instance, uh, just if I could give an example, um, A lot of development projects now, and I was talking about Canada having this feminist international assistance policy, meaning that something like 95% of our development projects have to focus on women now, wherever we're implementing them in the global south. Um, Focusing on women, giving them opportunity is crucially important. And I completely applaud, I'm 100% behind all those efforts to do that. The problem that we run into, though, is that we sometimes forget that in order to really address gender inequality. Gender inequality doesn't just mean that we're focusing on women and girls. There's another side to it that we can't forget, which is the men and the boys. Um, What is really at the crux of um, 
gender relations or the relations between men and women, where we often find that there is a lot of inequality or imbalance, are exactly that, the relations between the two. That's so important. We can't ignore men and boys and just focus on women and girls and hope to achieve gender equality. That's just one piece of it. So now increasingly, thankfully, um, people have realized that. So an example I just want to give, and I always tell my students this, and I try to also give them positive examples rather than always negative examples, but I was involved in an agriculture project in Ethiopia. And so there were, we were working with women and male farmers, small farmers with really small pieces of land, you know, who were quite poor and they were growing crops for their own consumption um, and then selling um, some extra to the market. So you know, some of the female farmers were doing really well. And actually, they were most experimental in taking on a lot of new, um, I wouldn't say new, they were actually local methods of, of farming that had been forgotten. And, um, but they were more suitable for the environment. So actually, they found that their yields, their crop yields were, were sometimes four or up to 10 times higher than their husbands who were still using the very sort of traditional method, not traditional, I would say the modern methods of agriculture. So what had happened was in this one village, this, you know, model female farmer um, uh, got interviewed by the local radio station as being an example uh, for other female farmers that she, you know, she was doing so well. Now, what happened was when her husband had come home and learned from the neighbors that she'd been interviewed by the local radio station, he was in such a rage that he borrowed a tractor and ripped up his wife's fields. So I always show this, I tell this example because I want people to understand that it's also, it's not just a matter of giving things to women or allowing women to do certain things. We are trying to disrupt notions, ideas, um, norms of how we think and value women and girls in a society. And that means disrupting norms held by men too. And working from a young age, when uh, boys are young, on trying to get them to think differently about equality, getting them to think differently about um, how they think about girls or women. Um, super important. That's the level that we need to work on. That's the level where you can actually say that you're having an impact or change on gender equality. So very difficult work. Like I think sometimes people simplify it too much. Oh, we've got school. Uh, we just built a school for girls. Everything will be solved. Well, no, it won't be solved because do the parents agree, firstly, that they are going to send their girls to that school? Um, those girls might face barriers in getting to that school because of, uh, you know, it's not appropriate for them to ride on the back of a motorcycle like the boys do. And if there's no appropriate transport for the girls, they're not going to go to that school. And once they, if they go to that school and they face teachers that are, you know, extremely stereotyped or abusive, they're not going to stay in school. So again, I just always like to point out to my students that it's actually a very complex thing trying to bring about positive change. It's not just pro about providing access. That's just like one aspect of it. And that's a really good example of how like just a perspective shift or a conversation could have maybe made that go differently like if he if that farmer was there mm -hmm. and you and somebody he respected yep. could have gone up to him exactly. shaked his hand and yep. said hey congratulations to you and your family exactly. looks like you're all doing great work yep. your wife has set a really good example here you should be proud of her exactly. and like make that super exactly. clear then maybe he goes oh like i'm included in this yes. but not being on the grounds when it happens exactly. not being involved and then yep. feeling like 
well, I work on this farm twice a week as well. And what yeah. I don't get any interview and I don't get any recognition exactly. for my hard work. Exactly. And then she's going to say like, well, like, I'm sorry, like they just asked and like, I agreed. There's, I didn't think it was a big deal. Yeah. And his, perhaps his ego is bruised. And that's where just going too quickly mm -hmm. or not recognizing that like, let's just slow things down and make yeah. sure the whole family feels recognized in this process. Exactly. You could have gotten that person on board mm -hmm. because now maybe that woman feels discouraged from yeah. the work she's doing yeah. and that impedes all growth. Like yeah. she's just set a really good example for everybody. Mm -hmm. And now maybe the other women in the community feel discouraged from like, I don't want to do a radio show. I don't want to get my farm mm -hmm. ripped up. Like this is what we used to eat. Yeah. And now I'm not in a circumstance where I want to take the risk of being a, a appreciated or acknowledged yeah. in a positive way. Yeah, yeah, completely. So what we, the, the, the lingo we use is male engagement or male involvement in development is, is, is so crucial for any project that's trying to address uh, gender inequality. Yeah, I talked to um, Adam Gibson, who's a mixed martial artist. And one of the comments he made is like, it's good that we've made classrooms and, and elementary schools and middle schools and high schools more, less hands-on. Mm -hmm. um, but we need a, a space for that for young boys because rough mm -hmm. and tumble play is part of young boys development yeah. and if you just get rid of that and go we're just gonna have participation mm -hmm. and like we're not going to have any contact well yeah. that that impedes boys growth more mm -hmm. than i guess it impacts women yeah. at at scale and yeah. like perhaps there's only like a small minute difference but for boys they need that and like mm -hmm. i got lucky that i experienced that but for a certain period i didn't experience that and i know that that was impacting my ability to relate to other people and mm -hmm. to understand my body and yeah. so often when we're making progress we go that's the direction we want to go in mm -hmm. and then we forget about the progress that can still be made yeah. in more localized yeah. areas it sounds like and i think what's so important is to to realize that you know to to achieve i suppose justice or equality we need to bring everybody along in that and another thing too i like to point out to students is that although in many parts of the world in sub-saharan africa or south asia you do find that girls are still facing more barriers than boys in many respects but be really careful with that. That is a generalization again, too. So, I mean, I was working in schools in um, northern Uganda where, um, you know, we there was donors who were sending boxes of books. And, and most of the schools at a primary level are mixed boys and girls schools. The region we were in was a very poor region. There was an influx of refugees coming from South Sudan. Uh, all families were struggling. Um, you know, all, you know, I would say equally boys and girls were, you know, they were both coming from families that were, that were poor, but yet donors were sending boxes of books marked for girls use only. <laughs> so you can imagine what the boys must be thinking and feeling, oh, are they trying to tell me education's not for me? Um, but also another thing too, that you find in many parts of the world, I'm talking about, um, societal norms and some societal norms are that, um, you know, girls have less value because they, they have to be married. And so we're not going to invest in their education because why waste our resources educating a girl if she's just going to go be married to and go live with some other family? Um, but at the same time, too, there are certain societal norms that negatively can affect boys. Um, and we talk about that here, even in our context in Canada, that that boys and men sometimes feel like they have to behave in a masculine manner to fit in. And if they don't, they're, you know, uh, considered not, uh, not manly or, or whatever it is. There, there are certain expectations for how we think men or boys should behave. That can also really negatively affect boys. I mean, just going back to that same example of education, um, even if you look at statistics, um, even if, you know, 
there are perhaps fewer girls making it from primary school to secondary school in certain countries in sub-Saharan Africa. There are also huge numbers of boys dropping out. And that's also going back to the norms that are placed on them, the expectations placed on them. And in certain contexts, boys, because men and boys are expected to be the breadwinners for the family to go out and work and bring money home, you find that a lot of boys are dropping out to... to um, carry out informal jobs to bring money home to their households, which those households are poor. So so it's not to say, and it's it's really, I think, damaging when we try to generalize too much. And again, that goes back to me always emphasizing that if you are working in development, that you need to have these intersectional gender lenses that you put on to understand who's being affected and not to, you know, and to realize that probably different groups are being affected negatively in different ways. And how can you address all of that rather than just saying it's, oh, it's only one group. I'm only going to focus on this one group. Yeah, I think that that's a challenge. And you think of even here in Canada, how you said we're not perfect. We have like, I think it's a C or a C plus literacy rate. Wow. Um, and it's mainly when I was doing at least my readings of like newspapers and stuff, which I don't know how uh, valid they are. But we're basically saying that one of the main causes is because we have trades mm. and we have, it's so lucrative for somebody to go join the oil patch and go work there or the lumber mm -hmm. industry or do something there than it is to continue your education mm. because that payoff is so yep. far in the future yep. that it doesn't make sense to delay gratification for mm -hmm. four years, six years, yep. eight years if you're doing a PhD yep. in order to go make more money when you need money on your table today. Exactly. And so people think more short term. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a challenge that, most most people face is mm -hmm. do I delay gratification? Is it yeah. worth the wait? Yeah. What is the benefits going to be? Yeah. Um, what does that look like? And then people kind of get lost on why well, I got my education for English and now I want to do something over here. And mm -hmm. so does it even make sense that I got that degree? Yeah. And so it can be complicated for yeah. people to figure it out. And it sounds like having more conversations sounds like it's the path mm -hmm. to figuring out these problems. Yeah. Do you feel like the conversations that take place in developing countries they're high quality that you feel like we're we're moving in the right direction? I think so. I think amazing things are happening uh, in the world. And that's why it's, it's kind of my passion to bring those stories to my students here. I want them to know. And I feel like Canada does not do enough. Like, I feel like we're still, we don't have a global perspective enough. We don't have enough information flowing here in our country in terms of what's happening in the rest of the world. And that really frustrates me. Because if we did, we would understand we would see some of those stories we would widen our perspective we would again like what i mentioned realize and make connections oh well we we've got struggles in canada about these sorts of things but look they also have similar struggles over there let's link up and and let's bring our movements together and let's come up with some great solutions to our common problem so i think we need to do a much better job here in canada i um you know, I actually lived for many years outside of Canada. I actually left um, after my undergrad uh, uh, and only came back to Canada in 2013. So I feel like um, I'm relearning how things are here in Canada and certain things are still shocking me and surprising me. I kind of thought that by now, you know, there'd be more information flow, informed information flow about what's happening in other parts of the world. I feel like we're not doing a good enough job with that. And I think our education systems here are not doing a good enough job with that. So just like we're trying to indigenize and understand and bring Indigenous knowledge into our learning in schools, I still think it's it's also really important to bring a global understanding and perspective into our schools as well. It'll just make us better Canadians and better global citizens. 
that's what's crazy, right? Is that we live in a country and like it was founded on the idea that we were going to be multicultural. Mm -hmm. It was founded on these ideas that we were going to bring, bring the best of us, yeah. that we were going to like allow everybody to come and share their passions, yeah. their expertise, their language, their knowledge, their culture. Mm -hmm. And that was going to enrich us. Yeah. And that was going to make us all better off mm -hmm. because we'd see those overlaps. Like I was talking about indigenous culture and Christianity. Yeah. And it feels like we let all the cultures in and then we just didn't have the conversation. Mm -hmm. And it feels like that's where for so many people, they're still stuck in. Yeah. Um, this is better than this. Or, or yeah. I have this opinion. And that yeah. was passed on from my grandparents mm -hmm. because we forgot to share and build upon each other and learn from each other. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I was younger, we had like a multicultural day where we brought in the different foods from mm -hmm. the different cultures, but they didn't explain whose culture, why, yeah. where it came from, yeah. what's in, and that's why people travel. Yeah. And so it seems so crazy that we have all these different cultures, all these different um, backgrounds and interests and mm -hmm. experiences, and then we just don't talk about it. Mm -hmm. Or we put someone in like a position on a news station yeah. and they're not allowed to share their personal yeah. story or why they're there today. They're yeah. just, they're representing this yeah demographic yep. of people mm -hmm. but they don't get to say hey like it's pretty crazy that i get to be here today on the news and talk yep. to you i'm like we don't take an interest in like maybe our journalists sharing who mm -hmm. they are where they're from yep. how how much work it took them to get there like yep. i don't see that on the news where they're able to say yep. this is my personal background and i'm very honored and privileged today yep. to tell you the news mm -hmm. um this is my experience we're not like allowed yep. to share that yep. in the way that i think would allow people to go that's why yes. you're on the news and mm -hmm. i'm not that's mm -hmm. what you're bringing to the table that yep. i couldn't because i think yep. a lot of people watch the news and they go well i could do what you do and it's yep. because you're not allowed to say what makes you special? What makes mm -hmm. you unique to this position that's mm -hmm. going to enrich our understanding of what's going on in this community or yeah. that community? Yeah. Um, can you tell us about your understanding of what's going on? Like you said, there's a bunch of good things going on around the world that we don't know about mm -hmm. that would make us happier, make us more engaged if we understood what was going on. Can you mm -hmm. give us some examples of the great things that are taking place globally that we that's just not in our news cycles, that's not in our mm -hmm. everyday life? Yeah, I mean, we only seem to focus in on global issues when there's been a disaster, <laughs> there's armed conflict, um, and certainly those things are happening and are important for us to look at and important for us to see what, what can we as Canadians do about it. So definitely really important. But I'm talking also about hearing what is happening in these countries and locations that are really positive. What are local organizations doing? What are the positive stories coming out of these countries in terms of achievements? We don't spend time focusing on that. Well, maybe we do in classes or courses, but certainly not in the media. Uh, we don't hear that enough. We don't hear those sorts of discussions happening enough. But I think also what you are pointing at, too, we here in Canada have people from all over the world. We are, um, you know, uh, a country that uh, has, I think, as our ideal for a long time, been to welcome um, immigrants to our country, uh, welcome refugees. But that's another thing, too, where I feel like we have so many diverse people that have come here. Where are their voices? Are we hearing their backstories? Are we hearing what struggles they've been through? Are we hearing what their experiences have been like settling here? Um, we don't hear that enough. We really don't. And I think that would also help Canadians to get a more global understanding and and perspective just by speaking to other groups right here in our own country. Yeah, and I, I think that that's so important because it's, it's not even like it's it comes across like it's a responsibility when you kind of describe it like we should hear from these people but it's like 
we should want to hear from these right. people. Like it's 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 so cool that somebody came here yeah. and like we have um a few restaurants run by Syrian people here. Mm-hmm. And like you came here, yep. you had nothing yep. and you figured it out. Like that's yep. that's an like you think of the American dream and yep. that's the that's, story that they mm-hmm. share with people. And there's something just so yeah. strong about that yep. that I think we need to find that in yep. Canada. It might not be identical, but that feeling of like we want to hear mm-hmm. the cool stories of people coming here yep. and starting from nothing and yep. then building their life out. But like I have friends whose parents were refugees and mm-hmm. and one of them is a very close friend of mine and his dad and his mom came here with nothing and then he went and became an electrician mm-hmm. and um, his mother went and became a nurse yep. and they work every day mm-hmm. and they're always doing something and they take off time from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. Yep. and then they do it again yep. and it's like that's not just somebody's life mm-hmm. that's a really inspiring story about what it meant to them to mm-hmm. be here mm-hmm. and like I think we should hear those stories more yep. because it like I think of the people who were born and raised here and like a lot of my friends are like I'm just gonna do half the work yep. um, like read the read the synopsis of the reading yep. say that I read it mm-hmm. fill in the blanks and hope for the best yep. and and not try and it's like your like your parents worked so hard mm-hmm. for you to be here today yep. And I see that within um, their children as who who are my friends. And they mm-hmm. go, like, I have to work hard. Like, my yep. parents instilled that in me because mm-hmm. they sacrificed everything for me to be here today. Yep. And it's like, that's the story that I think you could put on the news cycle every single night. Yep. Nobody's ever going to get tired of hearing about how somebody overcame adversity yep. and grew as a consequence of that. Oh, yeah, completely. And I think that's what I really admire about you doing this podcast is you're trying to dig at some of those stories and get those out, which is just so wonderful. Yeah, and, and that's what I try to... All Always, I think at the base of everything that I do at the university with my students, if I can spark an interest, if I can see a student's eyes just kind of glow with like, oh, I never thought about that and I want to dig into that more, or I want to understand this person's story, then I've done my job. I just want to spark that interest. I think all of us should have that interest in us to want to know more about not only the world around us, but the people around us. Yeah, I, I think the secret to this is... People are infinitely interesting. Mm-hmm. And we, I think, got a traditional kind of approach in media to saying, like, this is how long will you get four minutes to talk about this issue? And then we've got to cut to the weather and like yeah. whatever it is. Or in a news article, you want to simplify it. Mm-hmm. Readers aren't going to understand if you use big words. So you yeah. got to. And we, we started to assume things about our listeners. And mm-hmm. I don't, I don't worry about how many people are going to tune in. Mm-hmm. I worry about is it, going to be engaging? Are people going to learn something? Are they going to grow as a consequence Mm -hmm. of hearing this person talk? And people can always go back. They can Mm -hmm. re-listen. They can learn. And I think we've just, we've underestimated people so much. Mm -hmm. And right now during this political climate, it's like we're treat, we're simplifying people down to one team Mm -hmm. or the other team. And the beauty of both sides is they both, if you, and like, my favorite, I think, word of, over the past couple of years has been steel man, is to take the position that you disagree with the most mm-hmm. and make the best arguments for why that exists mm-hmm. and then do that with the other side. Because yeah. you might not agree, like the, on the surface, you're right, they might be wrong and you might yeah. be able to point to a flag or a, yeah. a point that they're making yeah. and you, they're completely wrong. Yeah. But if you really think about 
What were their intent? What were they thinking? And mm-hmm. and do they have any valid points that you should hear out? Mm-hmm. That's where you're yep. respecting the side, even when they don't maybe perhaps mm-hmm. deserve your respect. Yep. But that's what I think brilliant academics do is they're mm-hmm. able to say, yes, we should focus on girls. There's no mm-hmm. doubt about that. Mm-hmm. The nuance here yep. is that we should also focus on boys. Like that's something yep. that so many people overlook when they're yep. grandstanding or yep. trying to show an, a sense of ego. And I do worry about that sometimes when I teach, actually, that I, I worry that sometimes students come to a class just wanting the solutions or wanting the answer. And I'm not giving them that. (laughs) I'm just letting them know that things are highly, very complicated, but you need to study them in depth and you need to have uh, an understanding from different people's perspectives. And I don't, and it is really hard to make conclusions on certain things, on most things. Um, Everything is gray. Uh, You know, there's a right, there's a wrong in everything. So I don't know if that frustrates <laughs> students that I do that. But yeah, that's just how it is. That's like, I guess I would argue that's what thinking is, mm-hmm. is that like, you're going to improve something perhaps, but you're not going to fix the problem. Yep. And so we're going to make gradual steps mm-hmm. in a direction and we get to pick the direction, yep. but you're going to be involved in whatever take steps in improving the process. Yep. Like um, interviewing Lee Harding, we talked about wolf culling, which is the mm-hmm. act of taking a gun and a helicopter and yep. shooting them. For, and like, so it's it's tough for me to hear that. And like, mm-hmm. I don't want wolves to be killed arbitrarily. Yep. I recognize that there's a need for conservation, a balance between having enough wolves and not losing the caribou. Yep. And so there's a balance to be kept. I don't think shooting them from wolves is the right answer. Mm-hmm. I'm open to the idea that there is some sort of hunting we can do yep. to bring down wolf populations, but it's a complex, there isn't a correct answer. Yep. And there's nuances to the process and yep. thinking it through. And then I posted that episode and some of the comments were like, kill more. And it's like this surface level understanding of yep. an issue yep. and a sense of like, I'm just going to poke and mm-hmm. I'm going to cause shenanigans with my one perspective. And I think yep. that that's the challenge social media has created mm. is because there's no price of entry with your thought, yeah. whether it's really low quality or really mm. high quality. There's no differentiation on yep. the algorithms of whether or not you've contributed something brilliant that's mm-hmm. going to inform us or something that's not. True. And so I'm interested, like, have you ever thought about starting like a podcast or something where you can, because I I think you're one of the only people I know of that knows about what's going on in the broader community that's able to give a balanced perspective on these issues. So maybe not a podcast, but some sort of page where you're able to share what's going on in the positive. Because I agree with you. Um, I love Fraser Valley Current. It's my go-to news now. But they're not talking about global issues. And Mm -hmm. obviously not. They're Fraser Valley Current. They're talking about what's going on here. So have you ever thought about doing something like that? I have. I'm not really big on technology, but I've been forced to learn. (laughs) Um, So I have actually started up a GDS program uh, Facebook page where I post a lot of stuff for students in particular. Um, But I've been playing around with the idea of actually having my own sort of faculty specific, specific to me, like external to UFE um, webpage where I can post a lot of this stuff. Um, so yeah, I've, I've been thinking about it increasingly. I think it, there is definitely a place for that. I've seen a lot of academics in developments who, who do sort of have a personal page where they will put sort of really, you know, cutting edge um, stories on what's happening in other parts of the world. And I think, yeah, there's definitely a need for that. So if there's any way I can support you with that, <laughs> whether it's uh, helping with the technology side, I think that that's, that's something I'm passionate about is making mm. sure voices like yours are heard, because I think it's valuable for us as a society to get 
information from reputable, reliable yep. sources that's going to help give us that new perspective. And um, one of my favorite professors during my UFE time was Mark Lalonde, and he was interested, a uh, criminology yep. uh, educator who was interested in risk management globally. Mm -hmm. And so he would talk about, well, like this company's trying to get gold from here, yep. but they have to worry about um, an uprising going on in the nearby country. They mm -hmm. have to worry about this. And yep. then uh, his assignment was like, pick a problem and then talk about all the challenges that come with that problem. Yep. And so I chose rising sea levels yep. and trying to sort out what all the different opinions are and figuring. Yep. It makes you realize that it's so difficult to come to any one conclusion on yep. something. And yep. it that's that form of thinking again, yep. where we get to realize that there's so many different avenues to look at one issue. Mm -hmm. If you look at your iPhone, you realize that the minerals from that are gathered by children yep. in developing countries mm -hmm. and they, they have to use their teeny tiny hands to do that. Mm -hmm. And then you hear like uh, people who are really interested in social justice go like, well, we need to like stop shopping at Lululemon for whatever reason. Yep. And then you go, we all of our phones are from this terrible yep. like developing country where we're abusing children. Mm -hmm. uh, China has the, the people making the phones. They have mm -hmm. nets over the building so that they can't jump out the window anymore. And mm -hmm. like when you learn those things like if that doesn't humble you if you don't yeah. stop and go like what are we doing as a society mm -hmm. where i'm accepting this yeah. level of um abuse mm. and like the atrocities of like to think that somebody would want to jump out a window is is yeah. hard to comprehend to think that they said well we'll put up a net mm -hmm. to prevent that seems even yeah. it's like a darker step in the wrong yeah. direction yeah. yeah i completely agree with you and i'm thinking you know Academics, we engage in research and we do research dissemination in the form of, you know, academic articles and papers, and we go to these really specialized academic conferences to present them. But for me personally, I don't actually come from a long history of, you know, of academic teaching. I come from a practitioner background, first and foremost. And I think that that kind of, um, grounds me, but drives me also. So I'm thinking, you know, back to this idea you had of having, you know, like a website or some kind of social media where I'm actually talking about a lot of these really tangible stories that I'm hearing in a really, uh, not simple, but um, uh, sort of reader friendly way. I'm not targeting an academic audience per se, but I want to disseminate some of these ideas and perspectives and share stories of specific people. For me, I find that as a priority. Whenever I take on any kind of research project, I'm not thinking from the lens of an academic, oh, yeah, I can get so many, so many academic articles out of that. No, I actually want to share some of these ideas and solutions uh, for the common person. And I think that's what's actually so wonderful about studying global development studies is we are very much a new discipline. We're really interdisciplinary. We don't have this long traditional baggage that other disciplines have of having to stick within these, you know, disciplinary norms that we have to follow. We're an applied discipline. We are working on issues in the world today with social con consequences that we want to find and address these issues. And so it makes us, I think, as global development um, uh, studies professors to be 
trying to uh, disseminate information in that way. We want to have an impact. We are not just doing it for the sake of saying, oh, we've dissected this issue and this problem and, you know, we've gone and uh, spoken to other academics about it. No. And I think if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't be in academics. That's the only reason I'm teaching is actually because I'm doing it in this way that makes sense to me. I still feel like by helping students to learn about global development, by me doing these research projects and getting, you know, the word out uh, in a way that most people can understand about these issues. But, you know, also a lot of my research is focused on the solution bit. Um, There's always like a policy advocacy component to what I do and what I want to look at in the world. Um, I must say, I sometimes do get taken aback by some um, academic papers that I come across and they're just dissecting a theory for the sake of dissecting a theory. And I'm like, but what's the point of that? Like, what are you actually applying it to? Or what are you actually making better in the world (laughs) by doing that? That's just for me personally. If I can't actually see an impact of what I'm doing on on a real world problem, I'm just not motivated to do it. So I'm happy that for me, I've found that ability, I think, to feel uh, motivated within uh, teaching and carrying out research in global development. Yeah, I think that that's important for students to be aware of is that there are two different types of um, academics. Mm -hmm. There's the academics that believe that what they're teaching you is a tool Mm -hmm. and it's going to go in your tool belt and you're going to go make a difference or hopefully you're going to keep it in mind and it's going to spark something in the future. Mm -hmm. And then there are academics who are more just focused on research for the grants that they've received Mm -hmm. and and the processes within the university that open more doors that lead to other opportunities. Mm -hmm. And it's like they're more um, focused on themselves and where they want to take their career mm-hmm. and rather than what am I doing and is, is there a purpose behind yeah. that? And I'm like, it's not just academics. People fall into that when they start a business. They start with a good cause and then 20 years later, they've forgotten what that cause was right. because business came up and they were focused on yeah. the next deal and the next opportunity and they lose. Why did you go to law school? Mm-hmm. Why did you attend this university? Why did yeah. you go into this field? Yeah. And when you kind of stop talking about it, mm-hmm. you stop having that passion for it. Yeah. And I think that that's where people can feel um, like a genuine connection with their their educator because Rebecca is very picky about who she takes as a teacher. And she looked at it in a completely different way. I was being supported through my education by my Indigenous community. Mm -hmm. And so I had more of a, I have to take the course. I don't care who I take the course with. So I'm going to take the course and then I'm going to pass the course and I'm going to go on to the next course Mm -hmm. where she was like, well, I'm I'm paying for this, right? (laughs) So what am I getting out of it? I'm going to take this course. So I want to take it with somebody who actually wants me to learn something. Mm -hmm. And uh, you're, and like, I know certain educators don't care about the rate my professors review. I don't agree with that mindset. I think that they're obviously nonsensical. I get nonsensical comments on my (laughs) YouTube channel. That's not where I'm going to go. But there are insightful responses. One of yours is caring. Mm -hmm. That is one of your number one responses. Mm -hmm. If students find you caring, and that's so important when you're, when you want to take an interest in something, you first need that person to actually care about what they're teaching completely and then second you want that person to be invested in you mm-hmm. and having sharing their passion with you yeah and so can you tell us a little bit about what your courses are and what you uh how you kind of approach it mm-hmm. well i i'm humbled by uh students calling me caring but i'm i'm not surprised in the sense that you know when i said to you that my whole focus when i teach is that i want to spark an interest i want students to start to ask why and what's my role in that and what can i do about that i mean you, you can't you can't achieve that by 
being, I don't know, uh, harsh or not caring. <laughs> so, um, but having said that too, I think all the work that I've done, like even before I started teaching, my work as a practitioner was driven by the sense of 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 caring. Um, so I'm not surprised that I suppose I bring that into, into my teaching as well. But yeah, since I, I joined UFE in uh, 2020, I've had the opportunity to teach um, almost all of the core GDS courses. So, um, you know, we are a small program, but we're hopefully growing. Uh, we do have a lot of students who take GDS courses as electives from other programs, which is great and wonderful. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've, you know, had the ability to teach oh, many, many courses now in GDS, but also to create some new courses. So we're also hoping to fill and to sort of bring along the GDS program, um, update it to decolonize it. So I've also um, been working on and I've uh, created a, a, quite a few new courses. So there's a new course on gender and global development. I have a new course on global health. I have a course on development issues in sub-Saharan Africa, a course on refugees and uh, population displacement. Hold on. Could you go through each one of these just briefly <laughs> to describe um, what what kind of students would get out of each course? Yeah. So I think for all of them, I think something common is I, you know, it is global development after all. So it's not just looking at these issues through the lens of what's happening in so-called developing countries, but again, always making linkages to what's happening here in Canada. So making those linkages between the local and the global. Um, so for instance, our, you know, the refugee course, which I haven't yet started teaching, but it is um, approved for me to start teaching, um, is doing just that. So we're looking at, um, you know, from a macro level, what is happening globally with forced migration, people who are forced to flee their homes. And then how does that impact us here in Canada? But what is Canada's role in that? So then looking also at sort of refugees' experiences of being resettled here in Canada. Um, my gender and global development course is a really interesting one because that gives students a really hands-on opportunity to interact with global development organizations. So when I was talking to you about this gender intersectional lens, I actually do a lot of work in that area of training NGO staff on how to use a gender intersectional lens. So I bring a lot of that training into that course for my students. Um, so it, it's quite a hands-on course of trying to say, these are the gender issues, but what are we doing about it? And what are the tools that we have um, to address it? And how are, and, and help helping and, um, students to understand how in today's world are development organizations attacking these issues? What tools are they using? Are they effective or not? So most of my courses all tend to have quite a practical applied um, aspect to them as well. And I always love to bring in speakers from NGOs from different parts of the world, um, government actors here in Canada to talk about the government policy aspects to the issues that we talk about. So I really try to give our students not just a theor theoretical understanding of the subject, which is important, but that to me is just one key component. The other components are how is that being applied? How is that being used? Let's assess and evaluate what impact that's actually having on different issues in the world. Right. And can you tell us more about the health one as well? Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So the health one, actually, I'll be teaching, I'm co-teaching it this summer with a faculty in nursing, Catherine Liao, and I would be co-teaching that one. So again, we're looking at um, global health. Uh, we, we I just seemed to find that there was a gap. Um, so Catherine Liao, who's in nursing at UFE, she also works on, we're actually collaborating on a global health project in Sierra Leone currently. And she actually has her own NGO and she does work in Sierra Leone um, from the health aspect. So I was bringing in the sort of social and gender aspect. And so we're collaborating on this project in Sierra Leone. So we will be drawing in that course on a lot of the issues directly related to our work um, on this project in Sierra Leone. So we're actually working with um, persons who have albinism. And albinism is a highly stigmatized health condition in many parts of the world where, um, you know, essentially, so in sub-Saharan Africa, where you've got larger populations who have this health condition, they have a very light um uh, pink, light colored skin um, and hair. And so they tend to get very badly affected by the sun. They've got really high rates of skin cancer. But it's not just the health condition that's the issue here. It's the fact that they're stigmatized in their society for having this condition. There's a lot of misunderstanding why they have it. People in the communities feel like they can catch it in the air. So anyway, so these this community is highly stigmatized but finds themselves unable to go to school, unable to find work, and living in the utmost poverty you can imagine. So um, so that course is going to be looking at um, you know, a, a broad range of global health issues um, and also bringing in, again, that practical aspect of what's being done about it and what needs to be done about it. That's super interesting because it reminds me of like um, conversations. The catching it isn't really the case, but like the idea of autism as yeah. a problem that yeah. needs to be removed from people. And yeah. then um, I'm a b- pretty big fan of Breton and uh, Eric Weinstein, who are uh, one's a biologist and one's a mathematician. And um, Eric has uh, he's on the spectrum, and he talks about how throughout his education, he was underestimated, Mm -hmm. even though he just, he was able to figure out the answers. It was just through a completely different route that is foreign to everybody else. But that allowed him and he's one of like, uh, he works with Peter Thiel, who's a really famous investor. Mm -hmm. um, And they're close friends. And the idea that he isn't capable because he's on the spectrum or that he's disadvantaged in some way, he would refute profusely. Mm -hmm. And he believes that like, we need to create space because people who are on the spectrum often bring a new perspective, something that's valuable. And we're whenever we see difference, we want to underestimate it. And I don't know, that might just be like human nature to think that like, why have the edge, Mm. um, like too much investment in ourselves. But like the idea that Growing up, I was taught that that was a disability, that Mm. that placed somebody at some sort of disadvantage, I think is an error. And then the other is my mom. And like FASD is caused by alcohol use. Mm -hmm. But to to think that my mom is is not providing some sort of value, like she was on my team since day one. She did. She couldn't do complex math questions. Mm -hmm. But what is that? Like, is that the marker of like her value in our society? What she brings is this never ending willingness to encourage others. And Mm -hmm. um. Rebecca came from two parents who never encouraged her a day in her life, doubted mm-hmm. whether or not she'd graduate, discouraged her from going to university, said like, yeah. well, how are you going to get there? And mm-hmm. it's like, well, we can figure out transportation. Yeah. It's whether or not she's willing to go. That's a way bigger issue. Yeah. And my mother's impact on Rebecca, I think, has been really positive mm-hmm. because it's not there's no question about whether or not she's going to encourage you and say, like, that's great. And, and like sincerely feel that. And mm-hmm. so she, her I would say like her empathy levels skyrocketed as a consequence of her disability, 
which mm-hmm. to me is an advantage for everybody who's in her circle yeah. because she's going to lift you up. She's going to smile. She's going to give you a round of applause. She's yeah. going to be that person in the crowd that's going like giving you a round of applause when mm-hmm. you walk across the stage. She's yeah. not a person who's going to sit on the sidelines and go, well, I don't, I don't want to embarrass myself and mm-hmm. I want to look like a professional. She's going to show that emotion and really uh, just focus on you and be proud of you. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's not, she might not be able to do, again, math questions, but that doesn't define a person. And yeah. this instinct to judge and then devalue, mm-hmm. I think, is so dangerous because, it, and it's not even dangerous necessarily for the other person, although I'm sure it is. Mm-hmm. Um, it's dangerous for yourself because yeah. you miss out on the potential of other people. You mm-hmm. miss out on the beauty that someone can bring because people who have met my mom have gone like, oh, well, like she can't, she doesn't write perfectly or yeah. she doesn't do that. And it's like, what, like, what are you looking for? Yeah. Are you looking for her to write a book? Like right. what's your thinking in regards yeah. to what value she's going to bring to you? Yeah. And so I think that that's so unfortunate right. when you have to address problems like that, because it's, again, it's like the people who discriminate, who stereotype, who think small minded. Mm-hmm. It's like, you're the one missing out. You're oh, the yeah. one missing out on new culture, new cuisine, yeah. different experiences yeah. and really humbling yourself. Mm-hmm. For sure. And I think what's been so inspiring for us in particular with this project in Sierra Leone is that we're working with a really small grassroots organization, which is actually led by a woman with albinism herself. So it's just been immense to see not only through our project, but she's been doing this work herself in Sierra Leone before we came along of showing breaking those stigmas. Look, you know, she's a highly accomplished woman. She's now, you know, she's being invited to speak to the media, to come to government events and conferences. And something so simple that's just struck me um, was somebody that we were working with in Sierra Leone, um, who I think came from a rural region, said, now people are starting to look at me as human. Before I was looked at as non-human. I mean, it's just incredible. Like, I think when you break stigma, uh, I mean, it, it could have a huge impact on people's lives in, in an extremely positive way. I mean, to be considered non-human to me, just how <laughs> I'm just even trying to picture that. Like, I've never had to deal with something like that, you know. So, yeah. Uh, and the other thing, too, that I wanted to mention about the global health um course that we're looking at is, you know, we, and I mentioned this before, that we have to look beyond just having access. Like we're very proud and happy in Canada that we've got universal free healthcare. Um, Okay. In the U.S. it's a bit more messed up, although they, you know, they were trying with Obamacare. Um, So it's not, so, so one key concept that we're going to be digging apart in this course is probably something you've heard about, which is referred to as a social determinants of health. So people's health and well-being can actually be drawn back to us understanding, um, you know, what their social group is. Are they poor? What is their gender? What's their sexuality? Are they in a in a group in society that's in any way stigmatized or discriminated against? And if so, they're going to have poor health indicators. Even if you've got free universal health <laughs> in your country, there are certain groups that face more barriers and will have poor health indicators because of it. So really pulling that concept and idea apart and applying it not only to countries in the global south, but to countries even here in Canada. So, I mean, you know, if you look at statistics in Canada, I love to always share, uh, you know, Canada actually puts together every year a report for the SDGs, for the Sustainable Development Goals. How are we, how well are we doing here in Canada for different things? And if you look at their section on health, um, you will find that Indigenous populations, much poor health uh indicators in Canada. 
um, women and girls, and again, particularly indigenous women and girls, much higher rates of violence um, inflicted upon them. An example I was giving my students, um, you know, in the US, if I can just really briefly talk about what I mean by social determinants of health applied to the applied to the US, which is a country that is developed, rich, <laughs> um, is that um, so they were looking at infant mortality rates. Um, and infant mortality rates is usually uh, a statistic or an indicator that we apply to developing countries. You know, uh, before the age of five, how many children die, which normally indicates that the health system is extremely poor or that certain groups of people are not able to access health at all if their children are dying before the age of five. And they um, so this person had taken statistics from one city in the US, from Was well, from Washington, D.C., and they were looking and comparing the rich neighborhoods of Washington, D.C., and comparing it to the poor regions of the same city. And they found that the poor regions of Washington, D.C. had an infant mortality rate 10 times higher than the richer neighborhood of the same city. <laughs> so again, I mean, those sorts of issues. Why is that? What's causing that? So those are, you know, caused by social determinants of health, which we're going to be looking at in, in the course. Yeah, I think of uh, what's going on right now with inflation rates and uh, government spending. And a lot of I don't I don't know how to reconcile the two because I know that uh, many indigenous people choose um, perhaps left or leaning governments out of hopes for the social programs and resources that they provide. Uh, one of the challenges is that um, government spending causes inflation. Uh, inflation disadvantages individuals on fixed incomes mm -hmm. more. And so who are on fixed incomes? Indigenous communities and people in poverty. Mm -hmm. And so you, I think it just came out the other day that we're at over 5% inflation rates. Mm -hmm. And so whatever the, like I know the government upped uh, social assistance benefits by a few hundred dollars because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Well, that just disappeared. Any no. any impact that that had to help people is gone now because inflation is, is increased so much. And um, people on fixed incomes, they can't, they, they can't, it's not that they don't want to, it's that they can't delay gratification. And that's what mm -hmm. investing is, is saying, okay, I'm going to give you my money. I'm not going to use my money because now you have it. And then you're going to give it back to me in three years, four years, or I'm going to invest this for my retirement and then I'll get it back. And mm -hmm. it'll be more than hopefully whatever inflation was. Yeah. And so I don't know how to reconcile the fact that I know that when I see like a local election or a federal election, uh, that many of my indigenous friends are supporting Jagmeet Singh or supporting Justin Trudeau or supporting left-leaning governments where it's like, I don't, I don't think that's going to, I don't think that that's going to help. Mm -hmm. I don't think that that's going to be where you're, we're going to address these health issues, mm -hmm. these challenges, because I, I see, and I've talked to Inez Louie, who was a previous guest, and she talked about the challenges of going to university from like uh, here mm -hmm. all the way to UBC and moving out there and being yeah. apart from her family. And you can't underestimate the impact that being disconnected from your community, mm -hmm. your friends, your family yeah. has on a person's willingness to continue mm -hmm. the side effects of like, now you're in a new crowd. Well, what do people on UBC do all the time? Yeah. They drink. And so you've got these negative peer influences now yeah. and you're trying to better yourself and you've got these barriers in your way mm -hmm. that impact. And that's not just just her. That's lots of people who yeah. want to do better, but have things in their way or things that make it more difficult to mm -hmm. 
to stay on the path. And it's not clear what the solutions are. But I see myself at this dichotomy of like, I look like and I think that politics gets too often in people committing to like left or right. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's like time and place. Mm -hmm. When we're having economic success, I think we should bring in more social programs, increase resources, make sure everybody has everything they need. But then when we're starting to see um, the spending go too far, or when we start to see challenges that we need to shift our perspective and support a government that's going to put like more of a like uh, rein that in and make sure that we have jobs and resources to mm-hmm. get us through those different economic times. So I don't say I'm one or the other. It's like yeah. it's time and place. Mm-hmm. But I don't know how to reconcile those types of more political challenges, mm-hmm. I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I don't have any answers there. Yes. <laughs> I think we all ask that. That's yeah. Yeah, I think it's just it's really important for people to consider mm-hmm. the different ramifications of the decisions they're making and the yep. way they vote. And I, I get really nervous when people commit themselves to one side or the other mm-hmm. because it limits you to being able to shift your perspectives yep. or update. Like there are certain political leaders I thought were going to be great and then made some good decisions and then made some terrible decisions. Yep. Well, that doesn't mean the And like people go too far to jump to, mm-hmm. well, that means I shouldn't vote. That means I shouldn't give my political opinion anymore. And it's like, well, people are imperfect. Mm -hmm. If you're hoping for a political system where people aren't going to make mistakes, errors, think Mm -hmm. short-sightedly, you're you're not being open to the idea that, like, we live in reality where there are going to be challenges and and problems. Mm -hmm. Uh, Can you tell us, though, about some of those stories? You said you had stories from other countries of successes or of what's going on. Can you tell us about some of those? Sure. Well, I mean, a lot of uh, success stories that I can think about and what I've kind of also focused a lot of my research interest in is actually people in, um, you know, living in poverty who come from maybe marginalized communities where they're living, who have been able to break through. We've talked a lot. I keep talking about like the root cause of gender inequality being social norms and beliefs and attitudes that are quite patriarchal. I'm really interested in those who have managed to break through that. The so-called outliers, those who were not, uh, who, who fought back, who fought against their, you know, the restrictions or the expectations placed upon them. Um, so I actually have a research study that I'm doing right now in um, Ghana, Mozambique, and Rwanda, looking exactly at girls' education and trying to um, carry out quite in-depth interviews with girls who are outliers and their families are outliers. So um, in terms of what do I mean by an outlier? So in the context of those three countries, it could be girls who managed to, uh, whose mother and father agreed to let them continue to secondary school and not to pressure them into early marriage, for instance. Why and how was that family able to do it? Why and how, what role did that girl play in fighting against those social norms in her society? So there's countless examples of girls, women, stigmatized groups who have pushed back against these very restrictive, harmful social norms in their society. I want to know how they did it. And I want to explore their stories. I want to know in depth (laughs) how and why, because I think those individual stories are the stories that we can use to move forward. Um, so I have a huge interest in in, in exactly that. <laughs> People who have broken through the social norms of their society to reach a, a, a situation 
um, better for them, a higher level of well-being? How do they do it? I think the solution lies there. And to show and share their stories and to have them be the role models in their local community. So a lot of projects that I work with, I'm working with um, an NGO right to play on many of my research projects, and they work a lot on girls' education. Um but what they do that's so interesting that has that builds community momentum and starts to shift those norms at a societal level is to take those girls who have been successful in school who have pushed back against all the norms in their society to to become employed some of them have became have become heads of their own schools. Um, very few women generally become um, heads of schools. You'll find that that position is dominated by men. But the women who have, they're role models. They're complete role models. And they should be out there as role models. Because when I've seen that happen, um, it can inspire an entire school of girls to follow in their footsteps. I think for me, um, sharing those stories of people who have fought against all adversity and their own society to bring themselves to a better place are the stories that I want to share. And I want to really, I think, try to investigate and see how those kinds of role models can actually lead to broader societal shifts in thinking. That is really inspiring. And yeah, so it, a lot of my research will be actually sharing those specific stories, yeah. Yeah, because I think that that is what... what I'm trying to do as well is mm -hmm. to believe that like you there's something to learn from so many different people who have faced challenges like Brian Minter who was a previous guest talked mm -hmm. about he's worked for years and he it doesn't sound like he's made a crazy living off of his business yep. but he felt a responsibility to share this with the community mm -hmm. to build his community up and yep. I think that there is so much to learn from individuals mm -hmm. and being able to share their stories it, it's it's like soul fulfilling to yeah. know that their message is being shared and then when you think about like how few like every once in a while a newspaper will put in like a happy blurb about a person and mm -hmm. and something like that but it's not it's not done with the same passion that you're going to bring to mm -hmm. the table where you're like you're researching this and you get to perhaps meet the person mm -hmm. or meet people involved in this and go like wow, you guys accomplished this un this remarkable thing that's going to make such a difference for other people. Yep. And seeing that cascading effect, mm -hmm. I think it, it gives other people hope and it, it creates the space for other people to figure out what they're passionate about and then to work to share that. Yeah, completely. That's, that's definitely my focus. I didn't realize that that is what I was doing with a lot of my research projects. But then I was, I was having to write up um, sort of some summaries of my research. And I realized, oh, my goodness, all my research is revolving around, um, you know, these people who are able to break through the restrictions and social norms of their society in a good way and trying to showcase them as role models and trying to investigate to see what are the ripple effects of that in their community, in their society, for the government. Uh, yeah, that's. I think that's where my my passion really is. So, how did you get started in this? Then, like, were you planning this from the get go? Like, you start in school. Did you see this as something that you were going to be interested in long term? Um, when did this get started for you? Yeah, that's a great question. I was always really interested, and, and I was like super ambitious in the sense that I think from grade ten onwards, I was probably investigating future careers and what degrees I wanted to do, and I was running through like all of my passions. Like I have to also say that that was one of the things I had to fight back with 
in terms of, you know, trying to convince my parents that this, I wanted to study this. Um, I remember my, my dad was making jokes with um, family members that, oh, I've spent all this time and effort to educate uh, my daughter. And now she's just going to be off uh, digging wells in some country. (laughs) You know, I think I can totally understand it. Like I think, especially being a child of immigrants, that immigrant mindset of we, you know, my parents came to Canada with graduate degrees, but they weren't recognized here. They struggled to find employment. And I know that. So obviously, I can understand for them that they don't want me to struggle. They want me to study something that will lead to a sure income source, a a permanent job and stability. I totally get that. So I had quite an uphill battle when I was trying to tell them, but actually, I want to pursue what motivates me and being a dentist doesn't motivate me (laughs) or, you know, um, I, I want to actually help in the world and make a difference. And so I was investigating everything that I was passionate about through high school. And um, I was fortunate, actually, that I was able to get involved with a environmental youth group in Vancouver. And that was kind of the impetus. I actually was always interested in issues of social justice. And again, I don't know where that comes from. I think partially, it is just how I am. Like I just um, I don't know. I, I I tend to be a very empathetic person. I want to understand people and I get very affected by people's struggles. I want to be an ally for them. Maybe it's partially me hearing my parents' stories of their struggles, why they left India, their struggles when they came here. Um, maybe it was my personal struggles of having to say I'm I should be treated the same as my brother. I don't know where it came from, but I was always um I think I only got motivation from feeling like I was having an impact in a positive way. So initially I thought, you know, the environment, environmental studies is where I was headed. And then I started attending some environmental conferences that were happening here in BC. And they were bringing in speakers. Like I remember once I went to this conference in Victoria as a high schooler and they had people, um, indigenous people from the Amazon who would come over to speak to us. And I started to realize, oh, well, these environmental issues are not so black and white as I thought, um, you know, and oh, you know, uh, this group was telling me about, you know, private companies coming in or what the government is doing, ruining their, you know, the Amazon rainforest right before their very eyes and they're being dispossessed and thrown off their land. And I just started to see and realize that all these things were interconnected. And I realized there was not one occupation that I felt could get at what I wanted to get at. And I and there was not one discipline of study that could get me there either. I wanted to understand and um, deal with environmental factors. I want to look at economic factors. I want to look at social factors. I want to look at political factors. Why do I have to choose one of them? I didn't want to pigeonhole myself. I wanted to do it all. (laughs) And I kind of wanted to understand it all in a holistic way. And so when I was in high school, and this will probably date me, um, there was only, I think, two universities, two or three universities at the time that had international development studies uh, degrees. And so I, nothing, there was nothing in BC, which is why I'm so passionate about UFE's GDS program to, to grow it, because it is still a bit surprising to me that there are so few global development studies programs in BC. UFE is one of only two. Um, but I had to move to Ontario. I went to the University of Toronto because I had to go there if I wanted to study this topic. Um And so, yeah, that's how I I ended up going there. And I just, I wanted to find something that was interdisciplinary. I didn't, I always hate restrictions. And I think maybe that's what my love is for trying to examine people who break out of their, you know, societal (laughs) restrictions and norms. I hate being pigeonholed and I hate being told you only have to study this or you can only study it with this perspective. 
Why? Shouldn't we be looking at like a wide variety of perspectives and approaches? That's what I wanted to do. And that's the only thing that satisfied me. And thankfully, I found uh, global development studies as my avenue to be able to look at social issues holistically. Right. And then where did you go from there? Because you attended the University of Toronto um, and you also went to uh, the London School of Economics and the University of Sussex. How did that all come about? Yeah. So again, um, when I finished my degree at the University of Toronto, I was still loving this area. And I knew that kind of confirmed for me, this is where I want to study, continue to study and to work. And so, of course, um, being practical, I realized that it probably makes sense to go and do a, a graduate degree. Although, what and, and I also always tell my students this, luckily at the University of Toronto, my degree had built within it a one-year co-op program. So while I was an undergrad, um, so it was a five-year degree, in fact, so you spend the whole fourth year working abroad. Um, I went and worked for a really grassroots feminist um, NGO in India for one whole year, and it was tough. It was tough, but it was eye-opening, and it just re- reconfirmed for me that this is the work I wanted to do. So I started to look immediately, since I had that one year of experience in India, I thought, okay, I think... Sorry, why was it tough? Oh, <laughs> Where do I start? It was so tough that actually after that year, um, so yeah, I guess, so I was in my fourth year of study, so I don't know what, how old I would have been, but um, I wanted to go, I chose India, in fact, um, and I chose India because I thought, well, for my first really in-depth experience of working in development, let me choose the country that my parents come from, I'm somewhat familiar with the culture and the language, I'll have a more... Uh, Perhaps I can contribute more. I can understand better the situation if I go have, you know, my co-op here in India. Um, but it was my, like, I had only ever visited India for short periods of time. And I was, like, sheltered in my relative's home. Um, sure, I saw poverty on the streets, but I didn't actually have to live it or really try to... Um, address it. I was really sheltered whenever I used to go travel to India. And this time I wasn't. I was just thrown out there. I mean, I love this NGO. And I think, you know, I don't regret at all the fact that I decided to work with a really small grassroots organization. I was essentially given a wad of money and thrown on the trains and said, you go travel to this state in India and go live with this community and come back after two months and tell me what you've learned. Essentially. And I had to do that for the entire year. And so I moved around to five, six different states in India. Now, I knew this, but it's only when you live it that you realize how hard it is. I was here, I was a woman, and I look Indian, and I was doing my best to fit in with the societal norms. So I was dressing very respectfully in Indian clothing. Um, you know, and so I wasn't trying to uh, behave in a so called Canadian way, I was trying to fit in. But I faced a lot of uh, gender based violence. Exactly. That's what it is. I mean, because I was a woman and I looked Indian. I was expected to behave like an Indian woman. I shouldn't have been on a train by myself. I shouldn't have been living in an apartment in Delhi on my own. So just for those reasons, when people saw me, they were assuming I must be a prostitute. So I used to have men knocking on my door in Delhi thinking I was a prostitute. It was terrifying. Um, you know, the, the everyday violence that women face, it, particularly in Indian cities, is horrifying. And there I had to deal with that for a whole year. 
And so, this isn't that long. Like this isn't a hundred years ago. No, this was in 1997, in fact. And um, so I left that experience and I, whatever experience I applied for after that, I would write on my application, send me anywhere but India. I was traumatized. <laughs> I truly was. Um, yeah. So that's how that the India experience <laughs> happened. What were, your, it, what were your kind of summaries from that experience? What were you able to pull from that? Um, just the realities of women in that country and the women who were fighting against, uh, trying to fight against violence. I mean, even now when I hear these stories that are always shown in the media about women who have been raped and abused and killed in India, I it it it, it comes back up <laughs> for me. I just like feel like, uh, you know, paralyzed by this issue. Um yeah, I don't know. I don't know what it brought for me. It brought me, I mean, I'm I'm sure it brought me more understanding, but it also made me run away, which is unfortunate. I actually haven't gone back to work in India since then. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I can't imagine. <laughs> I, it's hard to be able to put yourself in those shoes because that's so outside of the experience for, for the average and person. And I think for such a young person. And, and the funny thing is my parents didn't think it was going to be a challenge for me. Um, maybe they lived in India in a generation when there wasn't so much violence like that, but they were quite surprised when I came back and told them about my experiences. They were, they were quite shocked. So, you know, they also thought, oh, great. She's going to India. That's our homeland. Uh, great decision. But I don't think even they expected that I would be faced with, with those sorts of issues trying to work there. Yeah. And you think of like, when you know a certain community that you feel like, you know, like we feel like we know Canada mm -hmm. when we live in Chilliwack or Abbotsford or anywhere in BC. Mm -hmm. But when you hear about different experiences on Ontario or Saskatchewan or, or what some of the norms or challenges they face, mm -hmm. it's such a different understanding. Like, even when you think of like, um, realizing that like a different province has like a right-leaning leader or mm -hmm. this province has like you realize that they they value something else that there's something else going on within that community mm -hmm. there's different conversations perhaps taking place yeah. and so when you think of India it's like well there's different there's different areas and there's different populations mm -hmm. and every community is going to differ yeah. to a certain extent and and you don't know that mm -hmm. until you get there mm -hmm. and for you to be able to like experience that and then like leave with a deeper understanding of like mm -hmm. this is really what it looks like. These yeah. are the real problems other people are facing. And I think before I used to think about gender inequalities in India, but when you're faced with real personal danger, death, <laughs> violence, that's just a whole different thing. Uh, I don't know. I take my hat off to the women in India who are fighting today that are protesting on the streets against gender-based violence. I don't know how they do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Can you tell us just really quickly about what's going on in India now? Because I feel um, like I don't know if you're keeping up with the protests, mm -hmm. but I find that really I, I like to see it. Obviously, I don't like to see that there's there's problems that mm -hmm. they're trying to address, but I like to see that there that's like the only example I can think of mm -hmm. of like a global understanding of an issue that we don't we're not experiencing here in Canada, yeah. but they're bringing an issue that's taking place in another country to the forefront to me. Mm -hmm. And that's like the only thing I can think of of my real world JD GDS experience mm -hmm. of being able to see that and agree or disagree with the truckers protest. I, I like seeing 
the Canadian flag again as a symbol for something. Mm -hmm. Because um, I had, when I talked to Scott Sheffield, I was talking about how like, it doesn't feel like we have a relationship with our flag anymore. Mm -hmm. And again, disagree or agree with their protest. I think that the Canadian flag does symbolize something. Mm -hmm. And um, at least we're having at the forefront of our mind, a conversation about what that flag stands for. And Mm -hmm. it's the same with um, people kneeling in the U.S. about what the American flag represents to them and Mm -hmm. to their communities. I like that we're at least having the dialogue again. And again, to me, that's us recommitting to our values, Mm -hmm. figuring out what do we agree with? What do we not agree with? What does this flag mean to us? Mm -hmm. And there's a great Netflix documentary called Explained. Um, I talk about it a lot. Um, but they have one on flags mm-hmm. and how flags are often used to represent causes, mm-hmm. issues. And they're the start of countries and they're often the end of countries mm-hmm. in terms of their their existence. But the, um, the protests going on in India, to me, that's... It's really motivational. I know UFE has strong ties to mm-hmm. working with India. I know that there's a lot of people from India who go to UFE who live in our communities. Mm-hmm. And for them to raise the problems their country's facing yep. here, yep. it's it's inspiring. It again makes me think of that multicultural what we were what yep. we were saying we were gonna do. So could you tell us yeah. a little bit about your understanding of that? Well, the farmers' movements yes. that happened. Yeah. So I actually love the fact that UFE has got um quite a few uh like Punjabi students students like well Punjabi Canadians who like me were born here but their parents immigrated but then I've had also a lot of Indian students who have come from India to come study here at UFE and I think it's a natural affinity for them probably to really like my courses or to like GDS as a topic and quite a few Indian students have actually decided to minor in GDS um, after taking some of my classes, because I think what what they're finding is that, you know, the issues that concern them in India, they feel like they are standing up in front of the class and talking about these issues. And, you know, all these other students here in Canada are listening to them and giving value to, to those stories. And actually, they're quite shocked that Canadians actually want to learn about what's happening in India or learning in other part, learning what's happening in other parts of the world. So I love that aspect. I um, even had when the farmers movements first started, was it last year, I had one of my students and I asked her and I said, would you, because she was really passionate about the issue and she was involved with some of the groups here in the Fraser Valley that were rallying behind the farmers in India. And I asked her to actually give um, a presentation to the rest of the class about that issue. I mean, she was so happy to be asked to do that and, you know, to have an opportunity to share what's happening there with the rest of our students. And the fact that I was able to link that into our course material I think they were just amazed. And so I even now have got a few students from India in my classes and and I can just see their confidence, their their happiness at being able to get up and actually present on their own country. Um, And that's what the course is all about. You know, what are the issues happening in different parts of the world like India and giving value to that and trying to, um, you know, see what those struggles are and see how if in any way we here in Canada can be allies for movements like that. Yeah, I think that that's how, like, that's what university is supposed to be, right? It's not that you're supposed to just listen to the professor, do the assignment, submit it, leave. Mm-hmm. It's you're supposed to participate in your education. And yeah. so, you, um, like, I don't know why I just learned this in, like, my law school, but it's like, I have to write a paper on a topic. Well, how do I make the topic relevant to me? Mm-hmm. And how do I make it interesting where yeah. I'm actually going to want to do the paper yeah. and do the research? And I don't know why that didn't seem clear to me during, like, my time at UFE. Like, that didn't, like dawn on me to Mm -hmm. like why don't you write about something you actually care about like 
And I think it it makes a whole lot of sense to me. I'm not surprised that more and more Indian students or international students are are coming to GDS and finding an affinity with it. And that's like the ideal situation. I mean, rather than me going to India and trying to affect change on, you know, gender-based violence or whatever it is, isn't it better and more effective to have someone from India do that work in India? You know what I mean? So again, it's this whole aspect of trying to decolonize the sector and trying to encourage children of immigrants diaspora populations, international students to get involved in this work of global development, to go back to their countries of origin to try to affect change. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about what that presentation was or what's going on in India? Because I have to admit, despite the fact I've seen the flags, I don't fully understand what the problems uh, the farmers are facing. Mm -hmm. Um, Could you elaborate on that? Um, well, I'm probably not the best person to elaborate on the specific policies, but essentially there were certain policies that were going to be put in place uh, by the government, which would have removed a lot of the um, sort of sure income that farmers were going to get for selling their products. And a lot of discussion about the role of agribusiness actually driving a lot of those policy uh, proposals by the government. So again, Issues of basically taking away farmers' livelihoods and um, and a lot of discussion about who was going to benefit, certainly not the farmers. Well, that's what the farmers were concerned about, um, that it's actually agribusinesses and companies that were going to be benefiting from these new government policies. So I can't even remember now, how long did that movement and strike go on for before they were able to get the government to backtrack on implementing those policies a long time through COVID. Through COVID, they were in the streets protesting, blocking roads, uh, fighting for exactly this this very issue of their livelihoods. Um, and uh, for me, because I like to put that gender lens as well, um, you know, there was a lot of discussion as well about women's role in those protests and movements, um, sort of being so important and so crucial, but women kind of maybe being a little bit uh, not at the forefront of the protest, but they certainly were there. So I was, uh, I had some bells ringing in my mind thinking, oh, I'd like to study what the impacts of that protest has meant for gender relations. (laughs) Did it change anything? You know, did it sort of add, uh, change the value or expectations that are being placed on women because they participated in this? Yeah, because they're they're basically like they're putting their stake in it. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of garners respect from perhaps people with stereotypes yep. or or ways of thinking where they can't really get away with that mm-hmm. when you're kind of like, well, you were there for us and you were supporting these movements as well. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm just always encouraged when I see uh, like protests in general, just seeing people willing to vocalize or take a position on something because you think of how many people do farm work and how hard that work is Mm. to all like these are not people who are looking for the next pro like we have like kind of like career um protesters who who go to various protests and Mm -hmm. that that's what they enjoy do there's something Mm -hmm. about being and having a sign and standing up for something people enjoy that's not the population you're dealing Mm -hmm. with when you're talking about this community Mm -hmm. so the fact that they're standing up like to me automatically adds like a level of credibility i guess Mm -hmm. that like there must be something wrong here that's genuine because these are not your typical community you'd expect to see stand up in this way and so i think that that 
it's really optimistic when I see people taking political stances or voicing their viewpoints in peaceful ways. Because mm-hmm. you see it, like I saw it on trucks, I saw it on cars, vans, like all different vehicles. It, was, it, it didn't impact my ability to get anywhere, mm-hmm. but it was informative of like, there's a global issue I'm not educated on at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I constantly am learning from my students. Like, you know, I think it's tough for me to keep uh, on track of exactly what's happening everywhere all the time, which is why I love and I always place value on students' knowledge and students' experiences. And I don't hesitate to tell my students, actually, I don't know a whole lot about this issue. If you guys are interested in this, why don't you dig into this and come and present it to our class? Um, so I always make sure that my students are aware that I also don't know everything. There's so much going out there in the world and they could very easily be an expert on something or their experiences or their knowledge can be expert knowledge for us in the classroom. So trying to put all of us on an equal level of learning and trying to to let students know that we all value your knowledge that you're bringing here to the classroom. And if certain students I've noticed have a real passion for something or a knowledge or a personal experience in something, I always ask them, would you like to do a case study on that? Would you like to build an assignment around that? Why don't you come to the class and actually present on that? I think that is... Um, uh, uh, I don't think any student's been upset with me <laughs> asking them to do that. They've all been really happy to, yeah. to do that. I just imagine that like for some students, you feel underestimated by your professors and you mm-hmm. have this, you know everything, you're mm-hmm. going to tell me everything, and I'm just going to wait for you to tell me or yep. I'll read your lecture or whatever it is. And I don't know if it's actually, you were asking me before we started talking about my experience in India about when I went to England to do my master's and my PhD. And I'm wondering how much of that experience sort of shaped how I teach today. And I'm, and I don't know. And my only, the reason I'm saying I don't know is because I didn't, besides doing an undergrad degree in Canada, I, I did my master's and PhD in England, um, in the field of global development. And that's kind of where I took, I take a lot of my inspiration from in how I teach today, because what I noticed when I went to England, and actually I, I had to go to England because there was no master's degree in Canada in development studies. So I, again, I was forced to leave and go to England if, because I wanted to pursue global development studies. But what I found there, and I don't know, I always like to make jokes about this with my students, is that England is the country that colonized and destroyed <laughs> populations around the world. But they were also the first ones who, who said, oh, well, let's try to do something about this horrible mess we've created in the world. And they were the first to actually set up um, university programs in development studies. So I knew probably going to England was was good for me because that's sort of where, um, you know, a lot of the uh, the thinkers and scholars around development studies were. You know, when I was doing all my studies at U of T, I realized, oh, but something like 80% of these people I'm reading are academics in England. Maybe I should go to England for my next degree and really hear from them, you know, what's going on in the world. But which was great. And certainly that is um that is what happened. I was astounded by you know, the diversity of scholars um that I met when I did my master's and my PhD in England who but the key difference with them and I don't know if I'm mistaken for Canada is that what I loved about studying in England and what I found with those global development studies professors I had is that they were first and foremost practitioners, or they were first and foremost people from the global south um, who had experienced uh, the ramifications of um, being colonized and what that has meant. So they were... Um, 
they were real people and practitioners before they became academics. And they brought that into the classroom with them. And they really um, did not teach um, f- with sort of these airs of being experts or knowing everything. Not at all. That was never the way I ever had any professor teach me <laughs> when I was in England. So I I don't know. I That's just what I learned. And I suppose that's what I try to do now in my classrooms as well. And I love the fact that you know, that practitioner experience, their real life experiences on the ground, living with communities, being from a certain community themselves, was valued and was given academic value, um, not how many conferences they attended or how many papers they published. I found them all to be so down to earth um, and so willing to have students work with them on their research projects. That I was in complete awe of that. A lot of the people that I looked up to that I used to read about when I was doing my undergrad were now at, you know, either the London School of Economics or University of Sussex. And I was actually working with them on research projects. It just blew me away. Um, but their humility also. Yeah, that's super interesting. Mm-hmm. And I'm interested to know what your experiences were there, because one of the parts I overheard uh, you talking about in one of your lectures was this idea of that if we just bring in um, our economic systems, if we just bring that in, that's going to fix all these problems. Mm-hmm. All these all these countries need is some, some economic development, and then that will get everybody out of poverty, and they're yep. going to live the highest quality life. And I, th- again, that's just like one little sliver of Mm -hmm. pie and thinking that if you just toss that over, that's going to fix it. And so I'm interested, could you elaborate on the challenges with that assumption? Yeah, well, and it was a lot of these um, development professors that I had in England who were the ones leading the charge against that very notion. So, you know, I always tell my students, I have a class where we run through all the different um, uh, sort of developments uh, of our notion of development. So what are, you know, how did we actually first um, think about what development meant? And if you go back to the 1950s and 60s, it was purely an economic framing, exactly what you said, Uh, a country's GDP, economic growth, whether a country, you know, was was wealthy at a national level. Um, You know, typically, that was the way we understood what development is. And the, the understanding is that every country, every community around the world should try to obtain our level of economic well-being. Um, but it was actually, you know, a lot of these um, um, academics who were working on the ground um, in different countries in the Global South, or they were from the Global South themselves, who started to say, this is wrong. This makes no sense. <laughs> um I have been to communities, I have carried out interviews with people, and they don't think that having money gives them well-being. They're actually talking about a lot of different things. They're talking about whether they have a voice, whether they have agency, whether they can make decisions in life, whether they have freedom, whether they are, um, whether they feel that they are being included in their society. That's actually more important to people than how much money they have. Um, how much money they have wasn't um, being equated with well-being. It was all of these other social, um, psychological things that people kept pointing at. So, you know, gradually, as more people started to study communities in the Global South, so-called communities that we would identify as being poor, um, and finding out from their views and their perspectives, what does well-being mean to you? 
what does development mean mean to you? We were realizing it was very different from our um, global north western centric ideas of what development should be. And so, you know, I would say particularly there were a lot of anthropologists who were doing this work in communities at a community level, trying to understand local ideas and conceptions of well-being. What are their, um, you know, and trying to also look at um, like local uh, knowledge systems and, you know, who's included in that and who's excluded from that um, and trying to understand at a really local level what development is, they started to realize it means different things in different places. We need a much more holistic view of development and well-being. It's not a matter of certain economic indicators. It's not even a matter of measuring uh, your life expectancy or certain, you know, health indicators. It's much more than that. And actually, I had the opportunity to do my PhD research in the island of Mauritius, which is off the coast of Madagascar. Um, really fascinating country that I find a lot of people here in BC don't actually, when I first went to Mauritius, I didn't even, didn't even know about the country, quite frankly, um, because it is so far from here, but it's a, it's a very ethnically diverse country. Um, and so I was actually looking at, um, factors of ethnicity, um, and factors, you know, basically doing exactly what these anthropologists were doing, going to communities where we would define them as being poor and asking them, oh, well, you know, um, uh, what do you think you would need in life to feel well? Or what does well-being mean to you? I never once used the word poverty. Um, and I think that's something so important to spell out. It's our, we're we're imposing our notion of what poverty means upon others. Um, nobody ever used the word poverty with me. They would say things like, but yet in our Western measures, they were poor. I mean, they had very little income. They were living in really poor housing. But what when I asked them about their lives, they didn't talk about their money or how much money was in the bank or, um, okay, certainly some people did say, yes, we struggle. We I can't feed my children every month. That, I'm not saying that's not an issue. But what was at the forefront of their minds that they wanted to talk about was their exclusion, their stigma, uh, their commun the community stereotypes about them and how they felt dislocated from their own family networks. This is what was creating ill-being for them. Um, so I, I found that experience really telling and I take that with me wherever I go. Um, I do, like if you were to say what discipline within development studies do you feel the most affinity for, I would probably say anthropology in the sense that I just find that they are the ones who take um, a much more complex look at what's happening within a community and within a society. And they are generally much less, um, much more self-critical and self-reflexive, which is, I think, exactly what you need to understand people's situations before you're making judgments or placing labels on them. This community is poor. This community is um, rich. What does that mean? What does that mean locally? That's so important to understand. Um, so I, I found in, in Mauritius such interesting um, findings that I think probably led me to focus on a lot of things that I did later on, which is like, you know, I didn't even realize at the time I was doing my research, I was actually looking at intersectionality. I found that certain women of certain religions were being excluded from their families that was leading them to poverty. I found that certain racial groups faced such heavy discrimination by others in, this, in the community that they felt hopeless and had no uh, desire to push their children in school 
and were therefore in poverty. So I started to realize that there were all these other factors that were leading to certain communities uh, being poor in our Western notion of what poverty is. Yeah, I think of uh, like in Canada, I know a lot of people who feel like they're struggling paycheck to paycheck, who live in apartments, who have a $30,000 car that they're making payments Mm -hmm. on with insurance payments. And they're talking about themselves as like, oh, like I'm like in poverty and like it's not fair. And it's like, I don't know if I can get on board with your version (laughs) of like, and like you realize that like just more money doesn't fix Mm -hmm. life problems. And it's something that's been important to me not to overvalue mm-hmm. is somebody's career. Mm-hmm. And um, me and Sonny McKelsey talked about how, like, for the average person, it's like, what do you do? Mm-hmm. Well, like, yeah. that's your introduction to a person mm-hmm. rather than who's your family yeah. and, like, well, who are you related to and, yeah. and what brings you meaning? What are yeah. your passions, your yeah. interests? And, and when you look at people as just, um, like, well, how much do you make determines your your value in our community. You miss mm-hmm. out on almost everything that matters mm-hmm. and it's it's rather strange that like when you see these shows like minimalist or mm-hmm. people who are trying to simplify their lives that they're actually recognizing that like i had all the stuff i could need mm-hmm. and i was unhappy and I, that was actually the worst mm-hmm. i felt mm-hmm. and um the song bigger than me uh, came from a rapper big sean who's my favorite um and his song is about how he had like gone triple platinum on the charts he'd done really well he's made songs with everybody you could imagine in terms of like big names and he had all the money he could ever need he'd taken care of his his family financially mm-hmm. and he still felt empty yeah. and then he was like well, like when I realized that this was bigger than me was when I finally figured out where to go from here because mm-hmm. you like we we send people on paths of how much money are you gonna make and, and what's your title is gonna be and mm-hmm. and how do you pump that up on LinkedIn mm-hmm. or, or whatever website and and try and make yourself look like a big deal mm-hmm. that you get super like selfish in mm-hmm. your thinking and it, it's only about you and it's it's only about your success and how you get to talk about yourself and mm-hmm. brag at, at these conferences and say I'm a big deal and I'm yeah. important and you should listen to me because I'm the foremost leading expert and mm-hmm. it's like but who are you with your family mm-hmm. do you treat your family well are yeah. you respected by your children yeah. do they want to be around you and that's something that I think we struggle with a lot here mm-hmm. in Canada in comparison to developing countries yeah. who are really like this is my family because these are the people I'm trying to take care of yeah Definitely. I think we can't underestimate the importance of emotional well-being um, and what that means to us, for sure. Yeah. And so you you wrap up your education at um, in England. Where do you go from there? Because it sounds like you did a lot of work prior mm-hmm. to coming to UFE. Yeah. What were you doing prior to that? So I actually did my PhD um, with a view to continuing to work as a development consultant. I joked to my students that I was almost like, um, I, I like to call it a development nomad, <laughs> where you know how I was saying I didn't like to be pigeonholed. I I also wanted to be free career-wise. I didn't want to be stuck with one organization necessarily in one country or only working on one issue. I wanted to try to see development from all different angles and perspectives. So that meant a lot of moving around, working contract to contract. Um, I worked with government. I worked with uh, NGOs. I worked worked with um, the UN. I worked with, 
you know, um, different regional organizations, I wanted to see development from as many different actors' perspectives as possible. I just didn't want to stick with one thing. And I kind of felt like development consultancy would get me that. I would have that freedom to be able to choose different clients, different countries, work where I wanted. And that worked really well when I was young and I didn't have kids. (laughs) So I did. I mean, after I finished my PhD in England, I... um, Actually, I, I shouldn't, I should be honest about this one. I, when I was doing my PhD research in Mauritius, I met my husband there. So, oh, um, how did you guys meet? <laughs> so, um, I was working uh, for the UN for one year after I did my master's in England and met him during that year. And my work permit was going to run out. And we were kind of like, oh, well, we still want to investigate this relationship. So that's actually what drove me to go back and do my PhD when I did, because I knew if I went back to do my PhD, I could do my PhD research in Mauritius. (laughs) And so, yeah, I wouldn't have done my PhD as soon as I did if it wasn't for that uh, silly reason of wanting to stay in Mauritius. Um, so yeah, so because I met my husband and he was pretty grounded in Mauritius at the time and didn't want to leave. So was he from there? He's from there. Yeah. Wow. And yeah. so how did you guys go about meeting? We just, it's a very small island. <laughs> so I think there was only one, uh, place to hang out in the evening where everyone would go. And so I met him through a mutual friend who was uh, living in the same apartment building as me at the time. And everyone seems to know everyone there. It's, it's a really, really small <laughs> island. So yeah, that's how, how we met. And how did you guys connect? Like, what did you guys see in each other that, that brought, like that, that's a huge life investment to commit to your PhD and mm-hmm. commit to this community. True. So what did you, what did you feel? What was that experience like? I don't know. I just, I don't know what it was. I just kind of felt like here's someone with really different life experiences from me, but yet our core values are the same. And I want to keep exploring this. And um, I was always kind of open to the thought, like I never had any preconceptions or ideas that, oh, I had to go back to Canada I was kind of a free bird in that sense. Like if I could just keep floating around from country to country, I thought that was what I wanted to do. Um, so I, it didn't scare me, the thought of actually going and relocating and living in another country. I was up for the challenge and just wanted to explore that. And I was really into sort of studying Mauritian society at the time. And I wanted to keep, you know, further delving into it. Um, I was getting some great contracts to work with the Mauritian government on issues of poverty and, you know, exclusion, social exclusion in their society. And I just felt really fulfilled um, continuing to work there. But because I didn't like to be pigeonholed, I what I did was I based myself in Mauritius, but then um, was able to work throughout Africa. So I would go off for, you know, a, a one month, uh, sometimes three month uh, contract somewhere else. And then I would come back home to, to Mauritius. So I thought it worked out really well that I am, you know, Mauritius is still close enough to the rest of um, Africa. And that I could live that consultant lifestyle that I wanted to. But things started to change when we had kids. (laughs) Then we decided, um, you know, at that point, okay, my consultant lifestyle is not really working. Um, You know, and we also started to think twice about wanting to live permanently in Mauritius. And that's actually when we made the decision to move back to Canada. It was when I had two kids at the time. Was that tough at all? Was that like... Because you had all these experiences of of being out in the world, was that like a like a sacrifice at all to say like okay, we're going to put this kind of life experience and these experiences on a shelf, and we're going to settle down and start to make roots? Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting. That's why I, I always tell my students: while you're able, move around, because 
things do change in life. As you get older, sometimes you, you do have that need for more stability. I can understand students who have a need for financial stability. I completely get that. Um, yeah. And so I just found as I was having kids that maybe, you know, this lifestyle wasn't the best thing. And although I first came to Mauritius to work actually for the UN on gender equality issues, um, because Mauritius has populations from, in, in, interestingly, there's no indigenous population. It was an uninhabited island. And then it got colonized by the Dutch, followed by the French, followed by the British. <laughs> and they each brought populations from around the world to come live there as indentured laborers, essentially. So it's a very diverse island. But so because of that, they've got some pretty bad gender inequalities happening there. Um, but more than that, a lot of issues um, between religions and between ethnic groups and a lot of discrimination um, in that society. But I had two daughters that were born and we were all living in Mauritius. And we just kind of thought about their future. My whole family was back here in Canada. I had already lived in Mauritius for 12 years at this point. Wow. But, you know, again, moving around to different countries while I was there. Um, so we just kind of felt like I and I, I still kind of regret to this day that it's almost as if, is it a selfishness? I'm thinking about my daughters and I'm thinking I don't want them growing up in a society that believes that girls don't have value. You know, when push comes to shove, I want to leave and go back to Canada for the well-being of my daughters. Is that was that behind our decision making? Maybe to a certain degree, I did kind of feel like I want my daughters to grow up in a society where even though inequalities happen here in Canada, it's not the norm. It's not accepted to say to somebody, because you're a girl, you shouldn't do this or you can't do this. You can push back against it here in Canada. I wanted my daughters to have that as their um, as their values as their principles. I didn't want them to start being affected by some of those norms that I felt were harmful in Mauritius. And more than that, and to add even further complexity to that, because Mauritius had populations from all different parts of the world, um, they each had their different religions, there is a huge um, uh, sort of impetus in Mauritius to be religious. Um, I myself am not religious. My husband was not religious, but he's a bit of an oddball. I would say mostly everyone in Mauritius is, is religious. Um, you know, we were asked all the time, and he actually comes from the really small um, Chinese minority group that's living in Mauritius. So his great-great-grandfather had come over from China. So I think 1% of Mauritius' population is Chinese in origin. Wow, so, so he is an he, outlier of an yes, outlier. Yes, he is an outlier, an outlier in that respect. So, but I look Indian. Even though I'm not an Indian from Mauritius, I was basically, you know, seen through that lens of being an Indian in Mauritius. And something like 60% of the population is Indian Hindu uh, living in Mauritius. I'm not a Hindu, so nobody really knew what to do with me. I wasn't religious. <laughs> um, so, But we got asked that question all the time. And it's very rare to find people who have married outside of their ethnic community in Mauritius. And that disturbed us. Uh, you know, we probably socially, we were not outcast because of it, but we certainly did feel a lot of negativity and ramifications for him being a Chinese married to me as an Indian. And then people staring at our kids and asking them, what are you or what religion are you? And I was just so perturbed by that. <laughs> I said, this, this is not going to fly. I can't, you know, conceive of my daughters growing up in a society where they're being forced to say what they are or what religion they belong to. 
And a lot of that was kind of behind our decision-making, thinking about the well-being of our daughters, and but also wanting to come back to my parents who were here in BC, who were getting older. Um, you know, I think all of that was kind of behind our decision-making, but it was a hard adjustment for us. Coming from a really global um, um, situation where we were always traveling around Africa, we love that. We love that, you know, international exposure that we had and then coming back to Canada. But at the same time, knowing that we're making those decisions for the well-being of our children and wanting to give our children stability what was important to us at that point. And I would say that that's the story of like most families yeah. everywhere, right, is you want to give your kids yes. the best. And that's where I think a lot of the... This the political talk disappears is when it's your children, you want the best mm -hmm. for them. And I find that there's there's like real importance in recognizing that and wanting the best for your kids mm -hmm. and not being not feeling that guilt because yeah. it's it's at the end of the day, you're trying to position them so they can reach their full potential, whatever that looks like. But at the same time, I was privileged to be able to move. I mean, I think about so many other people and so many people that I spoke to in Mauritius who had been socially isolated and cast out of their families because they had married outside of their ethnic group who had nowhere to go. They were trapped in Mauritius feeling completely excluded and isolated. But I had that privilege of my Canadian citizenship where I could pick up my whole family and leave if I didn't like it. Yeah. So again, that kind of guilt around that, that I just pick up and leave because I'm able to when when it gets tough for me. I was but actually, I, think, yeah. I was going to ask you about that. What is that like to have gone to these developing countries and to know that you have a, mm. a plan to head back yeah. and to like, it would just, I like as an empathetic person, as mm -hmm. you've described, there's a lot of like, you see, you develop a bond with a child, yeah. you see what's going on, you want to help, yeah. um, you can't fix it, you can't fix the world. Yeah. Um, and so you have to, you still have that plane ticket mm -hmm. back home. Yeah. And so what was that? What were those experiences? Like. Yeah, I don't know. I still think about some of the people that I became really close to and what their lives are like and me sitting here in Canada and I feel riddled with guilt <laughs> about it. But I think it just gives me even more impetus to get their stories out and to keep working on these issues and to, you know, do some kind of justice for them and their stories and to, to share that with people here is sort of my way of dealing with it, I suppose. Yeah, because I think that it's it's like it's not and this goes back to like the do you want zero struggle? Probably not. Mm -hmm. Like that's not the goal. But yeah. how much struggle is reasonable? Yeah. And I think that that is one of the best ways you can make an impact is by telling their stories, because mm -hmm. that also in, that not only encourages them, but it encourages other people to be like them mm -hmm. and to, to follow in those footsteps. And yeah. Um, I don't know what the correct amount of struggle is, but I think that when it's told as a story, like I get worried when um, Indigenous people get told too often about our incarceration rates mm. and, and the reasons are because the government did this to you and that's the reason, because yeah. that leaves with certain, as a Native court worker mm -hmm. working with certain people, there would be this attitude, well, this is the government's fault, this isn't my right. fault. And so like, I'm yeah. just going to wait until they, they, they fix all their problems yeah. and then I'll leave. And it's like, yeah, but you're here today. You're in jail mm -hmm. today. And mm -hmm. so like, how are we going to get you out of here? Yeah. And there still needs to be that element of 
personal autonomy of like yeah. what are what are the steps we're going to take to yeah. get you out of here yeah. what how like yes you've been disadvantaged mm-hmm. and we can name those all day long yeah. but how are you going to get out of this circumstance so you don't have to come back here because yeah. do you really want to just be a statistic for other people to refer to as mm-hmm. an overrepresentation, or do you want to live your own life and yeah. define your own story yeah. aside from that and yeah. I think that 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 is the freedom that I think we talk about in terms of Canada and the US yeah for sure and that's why I think I love doing this work and getting people's stories out there because I feel like exactly what you've said we some groups have huge immense challenges and barriers they face discrimination even today in our country but yet if I share stories of other people who've had adversities and struggled through and you know used whatever options and agency they had to try to make life better for them Um, I think that's a worthwhile thing to do, to let people know that despite their adversities, despite their barriers, they are still, they can still do something, you know, not to minimize at all the barriers that they face or the discrimination they face. And yes, we should be pointing fingers at government and government policies and other people's views and stereotypes and biases, etc. But these are some, you know, some of these people that I had the privilege of speaking to and researching in Mauritius and other countries, you know, struggled against huge odds. Um, And they may not be places in their life that, um, you know, they're not wealthy, or they're not, you know, maybe really well positioned career wise, or whatever it is, but they got through their adversity in different ways to a situation where they are feeling um, some level of well being. And, um, you know, I just think it's amazing to be able to share those stories with others. And if that in some way inspires other people to realize that, you know, they too can, can struggle on, um, yeah, I think that's that's wonderful. Yeah, hopefully that's the story that you go to see the movies for because you <laughs> think of like people underestimate, I think, movies like The Avengers or the Harry Potters. Mm-hmm. But that is that story being retold of mm-hmm. like uh, like Harry Potter as a character is like completely disadvantaged. His parents are dead. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't have any grandparents or support. Yeah. And what does he do in every movie despite yeah. the fact that he has nobody to concrete in mm-hmm. terms of his family? Yeah. He figures it out. And yeah. then he finds out that these people want to kill him and they yeah. don't want him to like... And he continues and he mm-hmm. never like wavers in the face of adversity. And yep. I think that that's something that you're supposed to learn out of those movies mm-hmm. that I think we we work pretty hard to underestimate why that book sold like a <laughs> jillion copies and why it's reached so many people. Mm-hmm. And th- there's a story there of encouragement yep. of yep. face the adversity head on yep. and you're not always going to come out on top, mm-hmm. but that's that's the only option. Yep. It's, it's the best option for exactly. you. Exactly. Yeah. So moving forward, how was the adaptation to moving back to Canada? Did you have like uh, culture shock is a word that's used pretty often. Mm -hmm. Did you experience that at all from seeing a different world and then coming back here um, and seeing like the students and the atmosphere? Yeah, for sure. I mean, if you think about it, well, I left BC as a high schooler, but then I left Canada after my bachelor's degree. And then I was away for like, (laughs) how long? I'm really bad with years more than a decade, several decades before coming back as an adult. Um, So yeah, I kind of felt like my husband got the red carpet when he came. Well, he was, so he became a PR, but we were married. So I think he became a PR when we were already in Mauritius. Um, But when he arrived at the airport, like when we first came back to Canada and he sort of declared, yes, okay, now I'm going to live in Canada. Um, You know, you go through this like immigration section of the airport and they welcome you and um, they're so encouraging. And so all the attention was on my husband and trying to get him to adapt 
everyone ignored me because I'm a citizen already, even though I haven't lived here for, for decades. Um, so I used to always joke to my husband, like, I need that help too, actually. <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do with myself over here. <laughs> I had never tried to get a job here. I like was I felt like I was starting at, at square one, essentially, relearning the country. And I had memories of Canada that were completely off, like things had changed, or I, I still remembered it through the lens of, of a of a youth, a young person, not as an adult. So yeah, I mean, I, I struggled. I, I think I struggled with, um, I guess thinking about jobs and careers at first and, and, and realizing that actually a lot of my global experience didn't really count for much here for certain jobs and careers. It was kind of like, oh, well, you know, the thing that immigrants always hear, where's your Canadian experience, you know, and the struggles of trying to get that first job in Canada when you have no Canadian experience. So I totally um, get that and, and understand that. For my husband, I think what interestingly, um, Mauritius is actually, even though the British colonized it after the French, they couldn't get rid of the French language. So even though English became the official language in Mauritius, nobody really speaks English. They all speak French. Really? <laughs> yeah. So my husband, I think his biggest um, adaptation was actually the language. And here in BC, French doesn't get you very far. <laughs> so, and then the other funny thing with him is that he looks Chinese, but he doesn't speak Chinese. He's, he only speaks French. So we were actually living in Richmond at the time, which is where I grew up as a young person. So when we first came back in 2013, we were, were living in Richmond. And um, Richmond has a very high Asian population of people who have settled from either Hong Kong or from mainland China. And um, we'd go to the grocery store and they'd be trying to speak to my husband in, you know, Mandarin. And, and he'd be like, I don't understand. <laughs> what language do you speak? He's like, French. <laughs> so, yeah, it was it was quite funny. But um, since then, we've actually met a couple Mauritians, actually. Not a whole lot, but there is a, a Mauritian community here in BC. So... Oh, I actually have a Mauritian um, studying in one of my classes at no, UFE. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And so you started at Kwantlen and there was one other university. SFU? That you, yes. And it didn't sound like those were great matches for your, your level of experience and what you wanted to embody as it sounds like as an educator. Mm -hmm. And like the, it sounds like you have certain values in terms of like having that practical yep. element. And it doesn't, didn't sound like that meshed mm -hmm. very well. Yeah, for sure. Like, I didn't know what to expect um, teaching at the university. And so basically, when I came back to BC, I realized that I probably wasn't going to be able to work as a development consultant anymore. Because if I wanted to do that, I would have been better off if I was in either Ottawa or Toronto, where all the development organizations are based. There's not a whole lot going on in BC. So I kind of thought to myself, well, I've got a PhD, I can probably start to look for teaching um, contracts and jobs. And so I was lucky enough to first get um, some contract work at SFU, which um, you know, it's a large, traditional, research-focused university, and I learned for the first time what that means. Um, and, you know, later got um, a bit of teaching at Kwantlen, which was a bit different. I, I felt like Kwantlen was sort of almost in between SFU and UBC uh, and UFE in some regards. And I'll, I'll explain that. But at SFU, I just kind of felt like there was not much focus or emphasis at all on teaching or teaching quality or even engaging students. Nobody really cared. It was more like, go in, teach what you have to, but then go off and do your research and do your publications. That's what we actually care about. Um, and I had also always had my eye on UFE because um, I probably knew that I would never get a permanent position at SFU because there was my PhD was in development studies. 
there is no development studies at SFU. So I was actually teaching in the international studies department, which was mostly dominated by political scientists. And they basically wanted everyone to kind of toe the line of using the political science approach um, and perspective. And they didn't really know what to do with me, with my PhD from England in development studies. They were all sort of like, well, what is that? <laughs> is that even a discipline? We don't really recognize that here. So I knew actually that UFE had a global development studies program. And so I used to periodically check what was happening over there. And it just so happened, I, I came across that there was a posting at UFE. And I jumped at it because it was in global development studies. And I kind of thought, well, if I ever have an opportunity to teach in my field, this is it. Like, literally, there is no other opportunity for me unless I leave um, the mainland of BC. <laughs> um, but I didn't know a whole lot about UFE. But what I found when I started just made me realize, wow, this is a better fit for me than my experience that I had at SFU in particular, um, in that I didn't even really know until I started that um, UFE is a teaching-focused university, not a research-focused university, and we've got smaller class sizes, um, and that student engagement and teaching quality is really valued. And I thought, wow. After my experience at SFU, I kind of assumed all the universities were going to be like that. So I was pleasantly surprised. I just felt like it fit my values more because, again, like I don't feel like doing things just for the sake of doing it. I want to spark a change and see students interested in the material. I want to be able to bring in my ex experiences I've had in Mauritius or different countries in sub-Saharan Africa and bring that to the classroom. And I also was really astounded that UFE seemed to value that practitioner experience I had because UFE realizes that, yes, we want our students to expand their minds and to expand their knowledge, but we also want them to think about careers. And I'm all about that. I completely think, like, I just, I'm, I'm a very practical person in that sense. Like, you know, I don't think I would have studied in the field of global development if I didn't understand what jobs I could do in that sector, or if I didn't get that from my professors in terms of how can this be applied? What can I do in this field when I leave and when I finish with my degree? So I kind of felt like my practitioner experience bringing that to the classroom was a really good fit for what UFE was looking for. And I just, you know, stumbled onto that completely by chance <laughs> of seeing this job being advertised and it was in global development and running for it. And, um, just later finding out that, wow, a lot of the things that UFE is doing kind of fits with my philosophy of what I want to do or how I want to be as an educator. Right. So when you went there, it, like um, from my understanding, it's only recently become a mandatory class that students have to take. So can you tell us about that journey? Because it sounds like that might have still been in the nascent stages of this program and then it's grown yeah. since then. So amazingly, the GDS program, so it's actually a, a whole program is in, you can do a, um, a bachelor's degree, a BA in global development studies. So I think a lot of students still don't realize that actually you can do your whole degree in global development studies or you can do a minor in or even an extended minor in global development studies. But I think where I've had a lot of students um, take my classes from other disciplines has been through the GDS 100 course, because that course offers students, um, it, it meets the civic engagement accreditation that they are required to do as part of their degree. So I get a lot of students taking that course for that very reason. So they're coming to the course, not necessarily because they're interested in global development, but because it's meeting that that, that requirement of civic engagement that they need to graduate. Um, but yeah, what, what is interesting about that course is that when I do get some students who come in and they're just, you know, really enjoying the material or it's opening up a whole new perspective for them, 
And if they're in their first or second year, they can still sort of say, okay, well, actually, now that I realize there is a global development studies program, or um, I want to do that. And so they'll declare um, GDS as their major. Um, or some of them who might already be majoring in something else might add on a GDS minor. So that's been really great. But I mean, definitely, it's it's um, uh, I'm really motivated to let more UFE students know about the program, but also what they could be doing career-wise if they were to focus on um, global development studies in their studies, either through a minor or through a major. Um, so I think there's a lot of potential to to let students know about the program, let them know what they could be doing with that sort of degree um, or that sort of focus um, in UFE, but then also letting other people know in BC. I think a lot of people don't realize that UFE has a global development studies program, and a lot of them are still actually <laughs> moving out to Ontario to do that degree. So yeah, just making it more um, well known. Yeah, because it sounds like you've also helped build more courses mm -hmm. in this program. And so what was that process like? You you come on board and then what, like how does that, you just start teaching an initial course, but it sounds like you've helped kind of expand the program uh, mm -hmm. with other faculty members. Yeah, I mean, I think when I was hired, I was basically... Um, you know, given some background on the program, the fact that it's so new, the fact that, you know, they haven't really made any changes to the program since it started in 2013. So I knew there was already an impetus, a push to rejuvenate the program, look at where the gaps are, bring the program more up to date, um, bring it up to sort of the best practices of what's happening at other universities that have, you know, larger, more well-established global development studies programs. And I think they were hoping to find someone whose degree was actually actually in development studies. And I think the issue we have in Canada, I've seen in many global development studies programs, is there not a lot of PhDs in development studies. So you might get someone working in global development studies, teaching global development studies, but they're actually a political scientist, or they're actually an economist, or they're actually um, a geographer, or whatever it is. But uh, so I think, you know, for me, knowing that I and the University of Sussex, where I did my PhD, is actually ranked um, globally as the number one development studies program in the world. Um, you know, I felt really motivated to bring my knowledge and my experience of how they run their program, what are their best practices, what are the sorts of courses that they offer, and trying to figure out here at UFE, where are our gaps, what can we rejuvenate, what can, you know, how can we better fill some of those gaps, and how can we bring the GDS program um, up to date. That is fantastic because that's like it. If you looked at a map and the impact that like one person attending this school and then returning that information mm -hmm. to all the students you teach, it's like um, thinking of like the how the the COVID virus kind of spreads. Mm -hmm. But information in a positive way does something similar mm -hmm. where it like you can take what you learned and you can bring it back here yep. and then it can start to grow and yep. it grows and grows and grows. Yep. And then more people know about it and then they go off and, and get education and then they start to share that and pass mm -hmm. that on. And then what was once uh, like a few courses is now a whole program, yep. which becomes a whole arm of the university, yep. which is able to allow people to see the world in a different lens. Mm -hmm. And um, as as we started this, my my concern is that we get too small-minded mm -hmm. and we think so little about everything else. And 
when you hear about like the supply chain issues that we faced and these different these different challenges, you start to realize, oh, what's going on in Ontario impacts me. Oh, what goes on in this area impacts me. Oh, what like the supply chains in China impact me. And like all these different challenges, they impact you and they, you don't get to see it like uh, watching a car accident happen, yep. but they're all impacting you. Yep. And having students like I'm glad that UFE made that mandatory because having a a larger perspective a more holistic view mm -hmm. of the world and like you can take a a biological view of something you yeah. can take a psychological view of some a sociological a criminological you can take different views but having that zoom out of mm -hmm what's going on globally and what are the decisions you're making that are going to impact yeah. what's going on in other countries or how can you be a uh, force for change not only here in Chilliwack mm -hmm. or or in your community yeah. but how, like what does that look like on a larger and larger scale yeah. and just having like maybe that person doesn't go into global development studies but having that person be aware yes. that they play a role whether they like it or not whether yeah. they know it or not yeah. on these global issues for is sure. super important for people to be aware of and I just I really think that the we talk a lot about rights and I think that the, there's a beauty in the responsibility mm -hmm. that you have that you can make a difference and you should make a difference in a positive way to your community whether it's environmental whether it's mm -hmm. in the communities yep. and that, that's something that like you should be proud of that yep. that's that's worth living yep. like a meaningful life for and that's always what I want listeners to like take away from these is mm -hmm. how do you go about living a meaningful life and yeah. different guests set different examples mm -hmm. uh, like Andrew Christopher he plays music yeah. You can find meaning in music. You can find connection and, and it speaks to you in a way that a conversation might not. And mm -hmm. you can get meaning out of like helping your family and making sure there's food on the table. That's why yeah. people are willing to do like um, uh, one of my bosses at my the law career. Mm -hmm. um, his father worked seven days a week. He worked a morning and night job so that he could provide for his family. Mm -hmm. That's not an easy, that's yeah. not like uh, laid back watching TV, watching the game and chilling out and eating Cheetos, mm -hmm. but that's meaningful in that it was worth him waking up yeah. and sacrificing his whole day and then leaving, getting on a bus and going to another job all day so he can provide for his family. Yeah. That's sustaining not like your relaxation mm -hmm. system, but it's sustaining your heart and it's making you feel like you have purpose and mm -hmm. you're making a positive difference. And, yeah. and that that's something to strive towards beyond what do what makes you happy, which yes. I hear so many people say. Yeah, for sure. And I think for me, exactly what you said, it's not that everybody necessarily will, uh, you know, have a career in global development. But what I and what drives me is that, you know, exactly that no matter what you're doing in life, no matter what your type of work or where you're living, or, you know, what your reality is, I'm striving for people to um, have broader perspectives, to be more um, understanding of others and other people's culture, to be self critical and reflexive about our own potential biases and stereotypes and just understanding that no matter where they are in the world, no matter what they're doing, we are all linked to each other in some way or the other. We've got some common values. We've got differences, being respectful of those differences um, and, and building bridges really between different communities, I think is the ultimate goal um, and, and applies to anybody, no matter where they are and what they're doing. Right. How long have you been educating there? And like, did you have struggles with COVID or what was that experience like? Yeah, I came on at UFE when it was full COVID. So I think my first year was completely, yeah, it was completely online. It was actually only since this January that I started teaching a class in person. Right. 
And two years went by like that. I actually forgot how to teach in person. <laughs> I had to relearn because, um, but I've gotten really good with the whole online environment, learning the technology, how to get students to have discussions in an online environment. I think I've almost mastered that, but now I have to relearn actually how to teach effectively in person. But it's been, it's been great. I found the students, I've been really amazed at how well they have adapted Um but also because of COVID, I've been even more aware of trying to make myself available for students because not every student has got access to technology. Not every student can master, you know, or feels comfortable having a discussion online. And some students really are missing that that component of being in class face to face. And I, I know that, you know, some it seems like the students who probably already have a pretty good system in place for getting work done and, and dedicating themselves to getting assignments in on time, they're not the ones struggling so much. I think it's the students who um, were kind of used to having uh, coming to class speaking to me face-to-face, -face, asking me questions as they arise in the classroom that are struggling the most. So being aware of that is really important and not assuming that all students are able or equally capable of coping, um, taking the course online has been really important. So I think all the faculty at UFE have probably, um, you know, been, been making more of an effort to make sure that we're available and in tune with the needs of our students because of COVID. So Hopefully now going forward, let's let's see. But I'm looking forward to to doing more of my classes in person for sure. That's awesome. Can you tell us about uh, what your plans are for the next couple of years? It sounds like you're rolling out some more courses. Um, what do you hope to accomplish over these next few years? Yeah, I mean, my long term vision is to just keep doing. Um, you know, at the moment I'm teaching, but I've also got quite a few different research grants going on. And I've also got a, quite a few students working with me as research assistants. So um, that, I think those three things combined has made me quite busy. So I think I need to probably <laughs> reassess. I think I was just so eager when I first started. I was like, yes, I want to teach everything. Oh, yes, I want to apply for all of those grants. Oh, of course, I can manage to supervise four students at the same time um, is <laughs> perhaps maybe to to just realize that I'm here for the long haul and take things one step at a time and slowly and just enjoy the whole process. So I will keep, you know, uh, you know, working really hard at growing the program, improving the program, trying to teach more classes, interacting with more students, and then giving and making uh, more uh, projects available for students to engage with me. Um, yeah, that's kind of my, my priority. Yeah, because you're also working with the Chazzy Hub as well, correct? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm an associate with the Chazzy Hub. And actually, the project I talked about, the girls' education project um, in Ghana, Rwanda, and Mozambique is actually linked to the Chazzy Hub. So because of COVID, that project got put on hold because all the schools closed down in much of sub-Saharan Africa, they've now reopened. So we're now actually just starting that project. So hopefully through the Chassis Hub, you'll hear some updates coming on that project and, and other projects. But yeah, I've really enjoyed that networking aspect as well. There's so many um, professors at UFE doing interesting work and so many um, interesting centers. Um, and a lot of um, internal funding for professors who want to engage students in research, which I find um, amazing. I'm actually astounded by the amount of really valuable opportunities UFE puts forward for its students. I never saw that at, at SFU, ever. Like, you know, occasionally there might be one student picked out of 
500 who are taken on as a research assistant for a professor. But at UFV, it's like I seem to see opportunities everywhere for students to get involved with faculty um, on really, really valuable research. Yeah, I am a huge advocate for UFE. It is, uh, it did me a lot of good. The professors there had huge impact on me in terms of helping me develop my perspectives, yeah. um, forcing me to realize that there is no conclusive solution to a lot of these challenges, and encouraging me to go reach whatever my full potential looked like mm-hmm. for me. And I think that those are role models. And I've been glad to see that they're doing more things like a career chat, yeah. because I think that that's how hopefully future like the idea of like just telling people to go to university which is kind of what uh sardis does is Mm -hmm. they just bring in a career advisor and they say you should go to university and get an education and you don't really understand why or who you'd be learning from and i really admire rebecca's approach to learning about her professors prior Mm -hmm. figuring out if they're going to mesh well um and like really taking advantage of that process Mm -hmm. and trying to educate herself on who's the person who's going to be educating me because Mm -hmm. That is certainly not the approach that I took. Mm-hmm. And I think it gives you a greater appreciation for the years that your professor has put into what they've done mm-hmm. to be there teaching you today. Because there's a certain um, short-sightedness or immaturity of just sitting down and you tell me what I need to know and I'll just wait until yeah. you're done and then I'll do your exam and I'll leave. Yeah. You miss out on, this is a person. This mm-hmm. person's dedicated their life to learning about this topic and sharing it with you today. Yeah. And you wouldn't be able to learn or take this course had they not done that. Mm -hmm. And there are new courses that didn't exist before that are being brought about because this person knows about this and Mm -hmm. wants to, again, expand this area so you can learn more. And I think that the university's willingness to start to do career chats and and take steps in that direction, I I hope they continue that because it's something I truly believe in, Mm -hmm. in a way of making education accessible to people because we talk about like oh maybe we should just put a university campus here Mm -hmm. and it's like what's less about that and it's more about why should those people in that community go to university and why should they go to your university Mm -hmm. and that's where it's not about the research grants it's about the connection that you're going to make there and the people you're going to learn from and the role models you're going to learn from Yeah, for sure. I I just kind of feel like uh, it seems like from my experience at UFE that there's just more of a human face on everything. I just felt as a professor, but even through the lens of the students that I saw at the bigger universities, that it was just this anonymous experience. Uh, Yeah, it just it seems like what is so valuable at UFE is that faculty student engagement and how it's encouraged and how there's so many opportunities uh, that are there for students. Yes, Thank you so much for being willing to come out today. Um, I know that you have a busy schedule and it's just such a pleasure to be able to sit down with somebody who really understands these issues and who's passionate about what they're doing. Like, I think that that's come through so much that you believe in the work you're doing, that you believe in us having a, a larger perspective on the world and your willingness to tell that to people and share that at every chance you get. I think that is always what I hope people take away from this is that there are different avenues in life and we're all going to have different ones, but we can learn from other people and we can copy the things we like and learn from those things and and really feel inspired to figure out like what we can do and realizing that there are other people in other countries that are disadvantaged, not only financially, Mm -hmm. but in their willingness for people to listen to them and hear their thoughts and hear where they want to take their life. And I know that there are a lot of people who listen to this who have negative parents 
parents who mm -hmm. say you can't go to university or like mm -hmm. you just need to go work at this dead end job yeah. and like you need to do that. And so being able to hear from people like yourself mm -hmm. has always been one of my passions to share voices like yours, because I think that it, it's encouraging. It makes you believe that if you didn't think university was the route for you, that maybe if you mm -hmm. take it with this professor, maybe it makes sense. Maybe it is yeah. possible. And I think that that hopefully sets an example for other people to figure out what they want to do and then go follow that. Mm -hmm. So I appreciate you being willing to share your story and your journey today. Thanks so much. I've really enjoyed speaking with you and, and sharing my stories. Yes. Well, we just did three hours. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. Thank you. That's so amazing. <laughs>